What is going on, ladies and gentlemen? Welcome to another episode of Faith Unaltered. I am your host, Tyler Fowler. With me is my co-host, my partner in crime, Dale Glover. Brother, how are you doing this evening? Or this afternoon? This afternoon. How are you doing, sir? Yes, I'm doing good. Uh, I'm looking forward to this one. Um, I think Bo Bronson was a good guy and a smart guy. You know, He's an expert in the doctrine of the Trinity, so I'm looking forward to examining it philosophically and... Uh, yeah, asking questions. Dr. Branson is that guy, and that's why I like him so much. Now, how you doing, Bo? It's good to have you back, and I'm I'm looking forward to talking about the Trinity today. So, um, now, the Trinity is an area that you are currently writing a book on. We talked about that a little bit uh, last time. For those that might not have seen that, uh, would you mind telling us and our listeners uh, what your book is going to be about and a little bit more about yourself uh, and maybe a little bit about your faith journey um, for those who might not have seen the Jay Dyer episode. Um, so, well, the book is a four, uh, so it's a co-authored four views book. Um, so it'll be uh, William Lane Craig, uh, Dale Tuggy, Bill Hasker, and myself. Um, so it'll be called One God, Three Persons, Four Views. Um, so we'll all kind of give our views about the Trinity um, and then, you know, critiques of each other's positions and then kind of a, a closing chapter. So um, as far as my, I, I guess, b before I get too far in, into anything, uh, by the way, I, I wanted to, to just offer an apology to Dale. Um, so I, I know I, I don't always keep up with the comments live while they're while they're going on on stream or whatever. But anyway, it's hard to do as I. Yeah. Well, and also. <laughs> get nasty but anyway I, I understand that there was some uh well both maybe kind of jay and maybe my own behavior and and some of the comments on the stream were uh offensive so anyway i i apologize i think i at one point said something about uh i thought a view was crazy or something i just want to be clear oh. i don't think any people are crazy um i uh, and i maybe shouldn't have used those words um and i also i would like Go ahead. I'm sorry. I was just gonna say, yeah, no, all, all, all in all, that that was not that you were a scholar and a gentleman. So, like, yeah, you you don't have to apologize for anything and and that sort of thing. And I, I have some stuff to apologize too. I did some stuff wrong, so you know, I, I apologize in my response video for my sins as well. But I don't. I, yeah, well, I, I mean, I don't think you have anything to apologize to me for. But um, anyway, I appreciate that. But I, I just wanted to, to to say that, and and also. Um, if, I, I don't. I think sometimes I think maybe the debate uh, crowds um, do a little more of that. They kind of want blood or something. Um, I don't know if any of those people follow me around, but anyway, if if there are any people on the uh, Orthodox people on the stream, I just uh, was reading a quote from our Savior uh, just <laughs> just now, uh, who says, uh, "I say to you that for every idle word." men may speak they will give an account on the day of judgment um, mm. by your words you will be justified and by your words you will be condemned so i know it's the internet makes it easy for people to uh kind of say things they maybe otherwise wouldn't wouldn't say but uh think about that before you sort of carelessly type things so um Anyway, for as far as my faith journey, I guess um, I I grew up Southern Baptist uh, in Oklahoma. There's a there's a law that everyone has to be Southern Baptist. No, I'm kidding. Uh, <laughs> but uh, but I think a lot of people were were Baptists of some sort. Um, mm -hmm. 
Uh, I had a really, uh, a really good church. I'm, I'm very, um, I'm really very thankful for um, uh, a lot of my, my upbringing. I, I feel like I got um, a very excellent grounding in, in scripture um, from that, that tradition. Um, when I was young and uh, when I was growing up in, in my church in Oklahoma, um, uh, it was very, it was still very traditional. It was very reverent. You know, we would stand when we would sing and sing out of the Baptist hymnal and, you know, some of those good old Protestant hymns that I still, um, uh, still kind of have a fondness for. But um, as I was getting it, kind of through my teen years, uh, I guess, was when um, worship was sort of changing all over the the country i think um it's kind of becoming more this contemporary you know christian whatever um uh which was fun, you know a little bit of that was fine um but i think i i started noticing then how in um i mean less so probably in my church but but in a lot of ways um people i felt were sort of trivializing religion in various ways so i I remember all these, you know, people with Christian bumper stickers and things that would cut you off in traffic. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> like not really the best. Yeah. I, I had some Christian bumper stickers at one point in time. And then I, and then it occurred to me like, yeah, what if I'm a jerk to somebody in traffic? <laughs> like, Is this really a good, uh, a good witness? I don't know. But, um, and, uh, I, I went off to, uh, to Tennessee, um, uh, to go to college to, I, I did a degree in, it was in music production actually at first, but, um, <clears throat> and I never really, uh, you know, I went and visited some different churches and whatever, and I, I never really, um, I, I just did, didn't find anything that, that I felt fit me. Um, mm -hmm. so, uh, but also in the meantime, I, when I was, I guess I started reading the Bible through cover to cover when I was like 11 or something like in fifth grade. Wow. Uh, and I, I did that. I still, I found my old worn out leather bound King James. <laughs> I, I, I was a weird kid. So I'd, I'd have it out on the playground, you know, at recess and other kids are running around and I was, you know, trying to read more of my Bible, but, um, and I, you know, I read through it and, um, and then my mom had like a different translation. It was like the NIV instead of the King James or whatever. And it was a study Bible, with some notes. So I borrowed that from her and, um, and I read that through cover to cover again, and I still felt like, wow, there's all this stuff I kind of don't really understand. And I like, you know, remember all the stories, but I don't really, you know, there's some of it I don't really feel like I understand. It was just naively as a kid, you know, you think like, oh, I'm just going to totally absorb the Bible and understand the whole thing. So uh, being a weird kid, I thought uh, I really need to learn Hebrew so I can go <laughs> you know, read the, read the old Testament. I'll, you know, I'll get to Greek later. I'll to tackle the bigger chunk first. And this is why you were 11, right? This, well, by this time I was like okay. 14 or something like that. So I'd, I'd read it through a few times and, um, you know, this, there was no internet at this point I'm, I'm old. So um, sometimes I say, I say this to my, my students, sometimes they're like, like there was no internet. What do you mean? This was before <laughs> email. Like, what, what does that mean? Like, yeah, I'm that old. But the dark um, ages. So you could, yeah. I mean, you couldn't just like Google, you know, learn Hebrew or something. So I went to a, a synagogue um, there in Oklahoma City, is a conservative uh, synagogue, and 
asked them if they taught Hebrew. Uh, I had my parents take me, you know, during this Israeli festival or whatever. And um, they they didn't, or at least they they told me they didn't. I don't know. Um, but uh, but anyway, it's kind of a funny story. At some point, this this old I was, you know, going around asking people stuff. And this old guy kind of came up to me and he sort of takes me aside, you know, away from people. And he he's like, uh, it's like, you're, you're trying to, you know, you want to learn Hebrew? And I'm like, yeah, I'm trying to, you know, I really want to learn Hebrew. And, and he's like, uh, kind of looks over his shoulder, you know, like, I don't know, like that's going to be a drug deal or something, you know, just kind of like looking around. He's like, you, uh, you're, you're Gentile, right? And I'm like, yeah, I'm Gentile. And he's like, okay. He's like, okay. You know, it's like, look up this. Yeah, I don't remember if he gave me their number or just gave me the name to look up in the phone book or what, but it's like, okay, cool. And at the time I didn't have any idea. I was like, why is this guy so weird about this? But, <laughs> but anyway, I found it was this like messianic Jewish synagogue, right? That, uh-huh. um, so I guess he knew about it and I guess he didn't feel bad about sending me there since I was a Gentile, right? But like, <laughs> didn't want anyone to know that he like, you know, was had any kind of connection with it or something, but, <laughs> but, um, and they weren't like the standard Jews for Jesus kind of thing. Like, you know, they weren't okay. kind of like evangelical. They were probably most people would consider them heretical. I guess I consider them heretical, but anyway, they, um, <laughs> They uh they had they had some kind of weird weird views about you know they they sort of thought Jews didn't need Christ like a kind of a two covenant thing or whatever but anyway oh, okay. I, I went there you know I would go there on Saturdays to learn Hebrew and um yeah. one of the thi- one of the guys there um who who really like like really knew Hebrew really well like native speakers from Israel would say like he sounded like a native speaker and you know would have a conversation with him. And he would every now and then have these what he called golden calf days where he would take some verse, like some verse from the Bible that's like a big deal. You know, everyone interprets it a certain way and, um, you know, bases a lot of theology on it and just go through the Hebrew, like go through the grammar and look, talk about where this word came from, what its etymology is and so forth. And kind of say, well, look, you know, you can also translate it this other way. And it really opened my eye. I mean, I don't always didn't always agree with them, but it really opened my sure. eyes to like how much the language matters and how much gets lost in translation and so forth. And that then got me into um, just learning a lot more about Judaism as kind of the background to the New Testament, you know, um, and I you know, became very convinced like there's a lot going on in the New Testament that really references contemporary jewish practice uh, you know practices in judaism at the time right right um that really you know change again changes the meaning of of or the significance anyway of what's you know going on in a lot of the, the parts of the bible mm-hmm. um i also got interested in the kabbalah and in kind of the mystical sort of aspect of judaism mm-hmm. um i read some some different books about that and i started kind of trying to read the new Testament from that perspective and see like, are there, are there sort of Kabbalistic elements going on in the new Testament? And I thought there looked like there's sort of maybe were, mm-hmm. um, but it was hard for me to, to piece together. You know, I, I just, you know, I wasn't a scholar. I was still 18 or something by this point in time. So, sure. um, but at a certain point, uh, and I said, by this point in time I was in, so once I'd moved to Nashville, um, or close to Nashville, I, I started going to a, the synagogue, an Orthodox synagogue there um, a little bit. And they would, um, I don't think they, 
should have. But anyway, as a Gentile, like let me come in and study, you know, Talmud. And one of them was was um uh, well, they they were both Hasidic. Um, so and one of them would would talk about the Talmud, and he would talk about it from kind of a Kabbalistic sort of perspective and stuff. And oh, um, wow. anyway, I learned a little bit more um, about you know, more and more about Judaism that way. And, um, uh, I guess to cut a long story short, I, eventually I was, I was in a a bookstore in Nashville with a friend of mine who is, uh, Episcopalian. And there was a copy of the Philokalia, the first volume. Um, and he was like, Oh, Hey, you'd be interested in this, you know? And I'm like, what, what is it? And he's like, Oh, it's these, you know, mystical spiritual writings, you know, from Christians from the first, you know, early centuries. And I was like, I was like, what we do we have that? Like I had no because I, I really my concept of church history at that point was just sort of like we didn't know anything after the New Testament until Constantine. And then after that, it was all crap and downhill for, you know, so right. I just didn't know anything about church history. And, and I was like, oh, so I, you know, looked at it and it was very, um, you know, it wasn't exactly what I would have predicted, but it was very much like what I was sort of sort of piecing together of like, you know, reading the New Testament in a spiritual sort of Kabbalistic sort of way, but it was, you okay. know, sort of different, but similar. Yeah. This is before Alexander Golitsyn did all of his stuff, kind of comparing Orthodox hesychasm to, to the Kabbalah and Jewish stuff. But, mm-hmm. um, but anyway, so I got interested in, in that and, and, you know, started visiting an Orthodox church and, um, found out we knew a lot about early church history and started a reading lot. You know, the yeah. apostolic fathers and the, the apologists and all this sort of thing. So, um, and I guess I'll just say it was, it was downhill from there. I had, you know, I mean, obviously I had a lot of uh, objections and, and questions about um, the sorts of things you would expect, right. About sure. Mary and icons and all this kind of stuff. But um, anyway, to cut a long story short, I, I eventually became Orthodox. Um, and that was about uh, <clears throat> the time I, I decided then to go back to school um, and uh, initially was going to study linguistic or I did study linguistics and um, took some Russian and Greek uh, in in college, um, uh, but then kind of eventually shifted over from linguistics to philosophy and, and classics. And then I went on to do my graduate stuff just in philosophy. Right at Notre on. Dame, and like, nicely at at Notre Dame, I met Father Brian Daly, who's a, a yeah. expert on yeah on on um the Cappadocians and just patristic theology in general. So um, I sat in a lot of a lot of his classes, and he was nice enough to co-direct my dissertation. So um, that's can't that. beat that. I'm uh so I've got a scribed account, and I was listening to Early Christianity by mm-hmm. Father Daly. And oh, nice! He is very, very informative and breaks it down to where it's just you can just <laughs> soak it all in because it's it's layman level. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And given who he is, I mean, you would think it would be almost like academic in a sense, which I enjoy academic works, too. But yeah. it's just lay level, easy to understand. And I was just you say, like, listen, was this like an audio? Yeah, it's audiobook. Mm-hmm. Was it him narrating it or was it someone else? That's a good question. So I would have to go back and listen. To the intro. I'd like to I'd like to have something of him narrating it. Yeah, yeah. But um, the one the one thing I have to say this, I, I sat in on so many of his classes and he would do this thing where he would have students always give like presentations like all the time. Uh-huh. And it was frustrating because like the students wouldn't know anything. A lot of times I would just be listening to him like, what are you talking about? And then just every now like every now and then he would chime in. 
And like, just whenever he spoke, it would be like some just brilliant, like super insightful thing. I'd be like, right. oh, like, that's amazing. Let me write all this down and stuff. And then he'd be like, oh, but I'm sorry, you go back, you know? And I'm like, no, no, shut the, shut the student up. <laughs> more, but, but yeah, no, he was, he's a great guy. Right on, right on. So let me ask you this. So we're going to be talking about the Trinity, Bo. And it's interesting because I've got Dell, who used mm -hmm. to teach uh, philosophy uh, in, in a secular university. And I was, him and I were uh, discussing some of the philosophical concepts whenever it comes to the Trinity. But I want to ask, how in the world did you get so invested oh, uh, in the Trinity yeah. to be able, at this point in your life, write a co-author book with William Lane Craig, Del Tuggy? and yeah. uh yeah. So that's a good question. Uh, so, so yeah, what happened for me was, um, <clears throat> yeah, I had, so I, I got interested in philosophy, <clears throat> um, partly because around, around the same time I was becoming Orthodox, I had a friend that I grew up with in the same church who mm -hmm. was becoming an atheist. <laughs> and so he and I got into a long, you know, email conversation back and forth, um, uh, just about, so, you know, about philosophy of religion is what it really amounted to. Um, although neither of us knew much about philosophy of religion at the time, but so that got me interested in it. Um, I had a, I met someone who gave me a, um, uh, he was a Christian philosopher and he recommended this book ab about atheism to me. Um, uh, so I got it and started kind of going through all these arguments and trying to, you know, pick them apart and stuff. Um, but the funny thing about it was, you know, growing up Baptist, um, the Trinity was not something I ever really thought about much. Um, mm. I thought about like the problem of evil and I thought about, you know, questions about like, at, you know, historical evidence for the resurrection and how does probability work and this sort of thing. Sure. Um, miracles, blah, blah, blah. So I thought about a lot of those sorts of things, but I, but the Trinity was something that just kind of we just didn't talk about in in my church a whole lot. Like every once in a blue moon, it would come up, and they you know wouldn't really say much in depth about it. But mm -hmm. um, but anyway, when I started going to an Orthodox church, it's just you know from start to finish, it's blessed be the kingdom of the Father and of the Son of the Holy Spirit. You know, in in the name oh. of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit. So it's just all, you know, over and over and over. So I, I, it really made me start thinking about it. And then I, I realized, like, I don't really understand this. Okay. So, you know, in my catechism, I asked my priest about it. And um, <clears throat> interesting, I mean, some people, you know, in, in my church would say, like, well, it's just a mystery, you know, no one really understands it or whatever. But but mm -hmm. my priest really didn't take that view exactly. He, he just said, like, well, you know, if you're really interested in that, um, you know, he pointed me towards some of Gregory of Nyssa's stuff and John of Damascus and whatever. So he kind of pointed me to some things to read. And um, so anyway, I mean, I read those and I couldn't really understand them still. So um, and that was also partly what got me to shift from I was I studied linguistics for a while as I was thinking about becoming a translator and translating the Bible and the church fathers and stuff. But mm -hmm. um <clears throat> But anyway, that got me more kind of interested in philosophy because I, I realized that I, mean, I could kind of tell from reading the Church Fathers, I was like, there's something really in depth, you know, going on here. I just don't understand it. And like maybe if I knew more about Greek philosophy and the terms and what I was studying Greek and I I had a, a one professor who was um, 
cool enough to do um, some independent studies with me in Greek. Uh, and as part of that, um, I, I translated some stuff from some of the church fathers um, that hadn't been translated. So at, at that point in time, Basil's ninth homily, uh, that's basically about the problem, uh, problem of evil. Wow. Um, hadn't been translated. So I, I translated that and some other stuff. And, um, and one thing that I realized, and then I, you know, would look at some things that had been translated, but I'd look at the Greek and what I realized pretty quickly, um, was the, the translations in the Nicene post Nicene fathers, you know, big set, um, are pretty bad. <laughs> and mm. in, in a lot of cases, um, what I realized was happening was that the church fathers were using uh, very precise technical terms taken from like Stoic philosophy or Neoplatonic philosophy yeah. uh, and, and making these, you know, like detailed arguments. But but the mm -hmm. translation just made it sound like poetry because they just translated. They didn't translate the technical terms as, you know, what they were technical terms for. They would just translate it however. And so you'd read it in English and it would just sound like gibberish right but but you you know read it in greek and it's like oh okay wait this is a really you know careful argument that they're laying out so i i was always anyway it just got to be something i i started to kind of be obsessed with i guess and I, so i went through you know um and actually when i went to grad school i wasn't thinking about doing like ancient philosophy a lot of people figured because i did classics in greek like i would want to do greek philosophy but it, I really wanted to do just like analytic metaphysics and logic and philosophy of religion, but going to Notre Dame, you have to study a lot of history anyway. And so it kind of got me back interested in, in the history again too. And um, I guess to cut a long story short, by the, by the time I had to decide what I was going to do my dissertation on at, at one point, I was thinking about just doing like Gregory of Nyssa's metaphysics, just kind of going through a lot of, you know, Here's his views about universals. Here's his view about time. Here's his view about this. And then I, uh, this might sound funny, but I re realized that the, it would actually be easier to just do it on the doctrine of the Trinity <laughs> because it, it wouldn't be like time and a lot of other stuff that, you know, it would, it would be more, more sort of focused. Yeah. Um, actually, one, one of the things that happened, I, I really was not going to do I got kind of more interested in, in history of philosophy, but I wasn't going to do anything with the church fathers, but I just randomly in the Notre Dame library came, came across, uh, I, I literally just like stumbled across, uh, there was a journal article that was, was like the new issue of the journal was just sitting out and I just saw it. Um, and it was like a, a paper on Gregory of Nyssa on universals by Richard Cross. And I was like, Whoa, Gregory of Nyssa. And like, the metaphysics of universals, like what? And uh, uh, so I read through it and that it just kind of blew my mind. I, I, I just could, I, I knew there was sort of philosophy going on in the church fathers, but I guess somehow I just never sort of saw how to connect it with kind of contemporary issues. Uh, okay. And that sort of a light switch went on when I read his paper. And so, um, yeah, so then I decided like, yeah, I want to do something with, with that. And then later, after I'd already started in my dissertation, uh, Richard Cross came from Oxford to Notre Dame. So I right. switched advisors to him and he was so he was my director and Father Daly was my co-director. So. OK, so, yeah, that was how I got interested in it. And I and I got interested in, you know, kind of towards the end of my undergraduate career, I started I, I 
found, you know, these articles about the Trinity from, from various philosophers. And I was always kind of annoyed at how ahistorical they, they were. Um, mm-hmm. And um, some more than others, I won't name names, I guess, but, but anyway, um, so yeah, it always, that always kind of annoyed me. So anyway, that was part of what I wrote about in my dissertation was kind of the methodology of, you know, like what's the role of history and the church fathers in, in philosophy of religion. Right on, brother. Right on. Uh, real quick before we go any further, uh, thank you so much, Max the Confessor, for that dollar ninety nine super chat. He says, and I might butcher this, Bo, so correct me if I mispronounce. Uh, the Saint Saint Macarius. Yeah, Macarius. Yeah. All right, must have been blown. Uh, must have blown young Bo's yeah. mind. Yeah, actually, the that first volume of the Philokalia blew my mm-hmm. mind. And actually, the funny thing, my nephew. Um, is becoming orthodox now and he just got a hold of a copy of the philokalia and he's he sent me a text the other day and he was like this is so awesome i was like mm-hmm. yeah that's that's what that's what got me so i just downloaded it on scribe last night and so oh, they yeah. have yeah with that subscription there's a whole like scribe's library oh, yeah, is yeah, vast yeah. i love it uh, yeah. i actually traded out audible uh for scribe just because of the content that they have yeah, on there and you don't have stuff. to buy every book uh yeah. even with a membership right so uh but yeah i downloaded the uh philokalia last night and it was it or it's good uh i can't wait to dive into it but uh all right bo so what we have going on today i know we're still kind of in the introductions uh but i know that you're going to present um mm-hmm. a presentation uh, sure. about you're going to lay out some of the you know more known uh models of the trinity we're going to focus and kind of sub focus in on William Lane Craig's view of the Trinity, so Trinity monotheism, uh, which the reason we're doing that is because that's what Dale holds to. That's his model of the Trinity. And I want to get some interaction uh, between Bo and Dale uh, on this subject because I think it's a good uh, a good topic um, to kind of uh, to kind of dive into. I mean, I love the Trinity, and uh, I've always been just infatuated by the concept of God in general. And so what makes God, God, who is God, uh, those types of things. And so Bo, I do have a couple questions that I would love to ask you, uh, before you do get into your presentation. Uh, but before I do that, Dale, is there anything that you want to comment on, uh, before I get into those questions about, uh, about, uh, Bo's introduction? Uh, no, uh, I think okay. he was pretty thorough and stuff. So yeah, ready to get into it. All right. Well, so I've got a question about orthodoxy then in, uh, I, I hear in, you know, Protestantism, whenever I talk to different Protestants, I've heard a few now, and I used to say it myself, uh, that belief in the Trinity is an absolute essential uh, mm-hmm. for for salvation. And so that's that's really my first question, Bo. Does orthodoxy teach belief in the Trinity is a necessary element of the faith for salvation? Yeah. Well, so one thing, uh, let me preface this by saying I'm a layman, so... Um, I, I don't really speak for the Orthodox Church uh, yeah. or anything. Um, sure. Uh, so, I mean, I can I can just sort of say wh- how I understand things, and I, I may be wrong. Also, I guess I should say this. I mean, you know, my expertise is kind of on the philosophy side of, of things, and it veers into the philosophy of the Church Fathers, but I've, I'm really not an expert on theology or canon law or any anything like this. But... I guess I would say my my understanding of it. I mean, obviously, we we baptize infants, right? So we we wouldn't say um, 
you know, actual conscious belief in something is, is a prerequisite or, or necessary condition on anything to do with salvation. Right. Okay. Um, so infants can be saved, right. Uh, people with, um, you know, adults with, with mental disorders or, or, you know, something can, can be saved. So, yeah. Um, my understanding of things is, is this, that the, um, the sin of heresy is, is the sin of pride, right? So the, what, the problem with heresy is not that you don't understand something, um, or that you, you need to understand something or have a certain belief or, or whatever. The, the problem is when you think that you do understand something, uh, and you think that you understand it so well that you understand it better than everybody else. Mm. And even when everyone else is correcting you and your, your priest or your bishop or your synod or the whole church is correcting you and saying this isn't right and, it, or, you know, uh, you persist and say, like, no, I understand this better than everyone else in the world, right? So think about someone like Arius, right? That What, what Arius did, Arius didn't say, like, Oh, I just don't feel like I understand the the Trinity, right? He he started preaching certain things, and his bishop told him that's wrong. That's not what we teach, right? And he was like, well, I'm still going to preach it anyway, right? And then they had a council, and the, all the you know bishops and priests in the council said that was wrong, and he was like, I don't care. I'm just going to go somewhere else. You know, and they deposed him, so he just moves to the Middle East, and he's like, okay, I'll just go here and right. preach. And then the entire world got together in an ecumenical council, you know, and, and said, like, you know, 99% of the bishops there were like, no, this is this is wrong. This is the right way. And they were like, ah, I'm still going to teach it. Right. So that's the problem with heresies when you believe that you totally understand something and you, that you understand it better than everyone else. Um, uh, and so, yeah, I don't think that you need to, like, understand the Trinity to, to be saved, um, as you know, as far as I understand it. Okay. All right. I appreciate that. Um, yeah. so my, my second question then is, so I listened to a few lectures, uh, from inspiring philosophy, Michael Jones. Mm -hmm. and, and so in to the end, Oh yeah. Go ahead, I just quickly, uh, yeah. that just very quickly, but just yeah, from my view, because this, this is yeah. something I talked about in my debate with Dr. Dale Tuggy when, I wanted to ask him, you know, it, uh, is the Trinity uh, an essential belief or not? And as a Protestant, I, I think it is. Obviously, understanding the philosophical model, that's not essential, right? We can have differences on that all day. But I do think that affirming the deity, or I have a way of phrasing it when we get to it, uh, that is necessary. If you don't, you're not a Christian. This is why we say... Mm -hmm. Mormons are not Christians and right. Yeah. There's nothing like that for the Holy spirit, but I think it's implied if it's important for one person of the Trinity, then it's important for all of them. So that's, that's all I wanted to say, Tyler. So sorry, go ahead and do your plan there. So no, I appreciate the clarification and I look forward to elaborating on that a little bit more whenever we get to it. Uh, but like I said, like I was saying, uh, so in prepping for this, I was listening to a few things by Michael Jones and he basically breaks down, uh, the concept of Second Temple Judaism in in describing monotheism, he actually says that, look, Second Temple Jews didn't believe in monotheism. They were more of a monolatry 
uh, type understanding. Now, granted, Second Temple Judaism, I don't think, and correct me if I'm wrong, Bo, but this is not monolithic, right? There are many or or a few different views within Second Temple Judaism. Um, But is that how the average Jew may be described instead of monotheistic, only believing in one God and no others? Uh, they would have more of a monolatry view, whereas they believe in multiple different gods, like they acknowledge their existence, but they only worship Yahweh. Right. So this also means a little outside my expertise, but I have read a a decent amount in that. And I'm I'm convinced that. So, uh, well, first, let me say this. Um, I guess there's a distinction we need to make. So. if what we mean by monolatry or henotheism, as people call it, like um, if what is meant is just sort of like there is some sense in which there are other gods, like there's some sense of the word God such that there are other gods, then that just, I mean, yeah, I would I would say that's something that's that's probably always been believed in in Judaism um, from the earliest times up through the late second temple. I mean, nowadays, I think, you know, a lot of Jews would, would, I, I don't know. I mean, but any, anyway, there, there, there's certainly, there's certainly is talk about other gods in the, in the Bible. What, another question though is what, what does that amount to? Right. So sometimes what people think that means is sort of like, uh, God is just sort of one among many, gods of the same like zeus or something right like a pantheon of gods right yeah so like yeah. if you think about like in greek uh mythology right i mean zeus isn't like qualitatively different from poseidon or hera mm-hmm. or anyone else right i mean they're all kind of the same sort of thing mm-hmm. um and that i don't think was ever uh well i mean who i, I who knows in ancient I, I can't speak to ancient jews but but it's certainly by the time of the second temple period i i don't think you have that sort of view um right. like philo is a good a, a good example of um he has a discussion of this where um so you know what so let's talk about this i mean what what are the these other gods i mean t- traditionally what what those those other gods are are the saints and angels right and and maybe maybe including fallen angels um so uh that, that's why you get things like with Deuteronomy 32.8 or whatever, where in the, the Dead Sea Scrolls version, which scholars all think is probably the original, it just says God divided the nations. So after the Tower of Babel, right, he divides the nations according to the number of the sons of God. Mm-hmm. Um, and in um, uh, in this in the Masoretic text, you end up getting the sons of Israel because somebody, I guess, couldn't handle saying the sons of God. Uh, right. But in the, and then the Septuagint, it just translates it as the angels of God instead of the sons of God, because it's kind of like that's they wanted to make sure that's the concept. Right. Like people don't misunderstand it as as sort of more polytheistic. Mm-hmm. So uh, Irenaeus says this, too, like when it says God stands in the congregation or the synagogue of the gods and in their midst, he judges gods. Um, Irenaeus says, well, God, so Irenaeus says God in that, in that verse is Christ. Um, so his God stands in the synagogue of the gods is the church, right? So that's the saints. And in their midst, he judges gods. 
the gods he judges are the fallen angels, right? Interesting. So God yeah. stands in the congregation of the gods, and he judges the gods. Mm -hmm. um, so, so like, yes, there's absolutely certainly other gods, right? It, but the question is kind of what what are those? And uh, Michael Heiser's dissertation, I think, does a really good job uh, on this. You can find it online. You can download it. Um, because a lot of scholars have have wanted to say that there's this progression from in ancient times, Jews were polytheistic and they just kind of had this special relationship with Yahweh. Yahweh was like their God, but, you know, there's a bunch of other gods. And then they kind of evolved over time to where by the, you know, by the end of it, they were like strictly super monotheistic and other gods don't even exist. So they go from kind of other gods to those gods are false gods and they're demons and then they just don't even exist. Mm -hmm. And Heiser basically goes through and shows that like the whole argument that people give is just circular, that there's there are texts that there are super monotheistic sounding texts from as early on as you want. And there are polytheistic sounding texts as late as you want and in the Dead Sea Scrolls and so forth. Um, so he and he, and he set, shows that, you know, people just kind of interpret away the verses they don't like but there's i think there's not really any particularly good evidence that there's a big progression but certainly by yeah the late second temple period like like i said in philo philo's big issue is uh the monarchia so he just says there's there's only one um god that is uncreated and unoriginate right okay. um and that's in the Bible too, right? I mean, so you have yeah. this talk like, let the gods who have not created the heavens and the earth perish. Right. So there's there's kind of a sense in the Old Testament that there are in some sense these other gods, which like Heiser talks about, right? Really just sort of means spiritual beings, right? Um, but there's only one that, you know, is self-existent and uncreated and so forth and, and has kind of created the other you know, the angels and, and saints and so forth. So. Yeah, I like what you said at the beginning of that answer. You know, there's a qualitative difference between God and, and all other uh, gods, right? Plural. Um, yeah. I do like what Heiser says, you know, Yahweh is an Elohim, but not all Elohim. And in, in, in defining what Elohim means, uh, Yahweh is an Elohim, but not all Elohim are, are is Yahweh. Right. Yeah. And I really like that aspect, uh, especially given that even uh, Samuel and I think it's what second king mm, mm -hmm. second Samuel um, is is defined as an Elohim. And so basically it's an entity oh, yeah. in the unseen realm. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, I learned a lot uh, from Heiser. We were this close to having Heiser on the show. Uh, oh, it was yes, it was he. So this was before he was even diagnosed with cancer. Yeah. And he I think it was sometime in July, if I'm not mistaken, we had him scheduled uh, um, to come on. And then that's whenever he was diagnosed and he canceled all interviews at that point. I know he did a couple later on, um, you know, uh, right there yeah. toward the end. He was doing a couple of uh, uh, shows, but we never could get him back on. And so then that happened. And but yeah, I was kind of bummed. Uh, but I know a lot of people loved Heiser and yeah. I was really appreciative of his work. He really oh, helped yeah. me out. No, it's a and, great yeah. And applying that now to the Orthodox view, you know, of the divine council, mm -hmm. it's like he was, he was there, man, you know, he's rediscovering yeah, yeah. that truth and it just, yes, you know, so yeah. Uh, anyway. Um, okay. So yeah, yeah, go ahead, Bo. Oh no, no. I just was saying he, he left a lot of great 
work though i'm appreciative of his work yeah yeah i can't wait to see you know people just take that up and and see where it goes from there so um all right so let's all right i'm going to start transitioning into a little bit more trinitarian mm -hmm. uh nuanced questions uh with this and so i hear a lot of talk and i listen to your symposium uh with mm -hmm. two other gentlemen and the concept of divine simplicity is it almost seems like a critical uh, notion in this discussion, whether one holds to divine simplicity or not. That's going to kind of formulate your view and, and eliminate other views that may not, you know, incorporate this this concept. And mm -hmm. so my question is, how essential is it for us, for us as Christians, Protestant, Orthodox, Catholic, whatever, how essential is it for us to hold to the notion of divine simplicity? And are there any expressed anathemas in our church history, so in the Orthodox Church, uh, that would set us outside small, small O orthodoxy for rejecting divine simplicity and affirming that God could be or is made up of parts? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, <clears throat> I don't, I don't know uh, if we have any. Um, anathemas about divine simplicity um okay i'm pretty sure the catholics do um but one thing that we always get into arguments uh, about with catholics is is the the doctrine of divine simplicity um so we certainly again i don't know about anathemas or conciliar sort of statements but but certainly it you know some notion of divine simplicity is uh a big part of our tradition. Um, I mean, you can go all the way back to Irenaeus, uh, says God is simple. Um, but the, the thing that we get into arguments with Catholics about is, is kind of what does that amount to? Um, so for us, we would say God's essence is simple. Um, mm -hmm. the nature is simple. Uh, and that really has to do with, um, the way you understand, nature and, and hylomorphism. So a, um, a non-simple nature is necessarily going to be contingent. And that's the, the issue that we want to avoid, right? You don't want to say God is a contingent being because he has um, matter and form and the form and the matter can come apart, even if it's not like physical matter or something, there's sort of things that can come apart. Um, but we affirm that there is a distinction between God's essence and his energies. Um, and that's not uh, something contingent. Um, so it's not that you can you can't have a nature without energies or energies without a nature. And energies, by the way, for those who don't know, um, it's just a, I don't know, it's probably a bad uh, translation, but it, it's come from the Greek word energia. Um, so it's where we get the word energy, but what, what that means is basically like an activity, um, an action. So, um, uh, you know, ice makes things cold. That's an energy of ice. Fire makes things hot. That's an energy of, uh, of fire. Um, okay. so that's just, that's all it means is just, it's an, an activity that something performs. So you can't, uh, the, the whole idea of a nature, um, going back to Aristotle is that things have an intrinsic, we'll probably talk about this later more too, but that things have an intrinsic, certain things have an intrinsic source of activities. So, um, uh, 
artifacts as such don't have any intrinsic. So, so think about Aristotle gives this example of like a bed or a, a shirt. Um, they can move and they can change, but it's always something else that moves them or changes them, right? Something sure. external to, to them has to push them or pull them or do something to them to change them. They can't just move themselves or change themselves. Whereas then you've got other things like plants and animals that can grow and move and do things to change. And it's them doing it themselves, right? So okay. living things have an internal source of, of motion and change and, and activity, right? So that's the concept of a nature is just that there, it's just a something that's an intrinsic or internal source of activities. So there's no such thing as a nature that doesn't have activities associated with it. And there's no such thing as activities that aren't, you know, um, uh, you know, being done by something that has a nature, right? So, sure. So, um, so they're connected, but they're, they're not just, one's not reducible to the other in, in orthodox thought, like we would say there, there's a distinction. And so the, the upshot of that, the reason it's important is because, um, like St. Basil says this, uh, when he's arguing with Eunomius, he says, look, you know, God is, you know, God's act of creation is not the same thing as his foreknowledge and his mercy isn't the same thing as his justice. And, you know, his, you know, all, all these things are, are different. The things that God does are, you know, various. There's, there's multiple different things that God does, but his, his nature is simple, but the, the energies are, are multiple. Um, other people say that the energies, the, the energy is actually um, singular, but it has multiple effects. But anyway, whatever, however you think about it, the, the point is um, Catholics tend to following Aquinas, like not want to make that distinction. So they'll just say that God, God's foreknowledge is his act of creation and that is his essence. And so forth. it's all kind of identical. Um and so they they call us polytheists so because <laughs> we we um but really i think um you know there, there's been a lot of criticisms of the doctrine of divine simplicity in in contemporary analytic philosophy and um i think a lot of the, some of those criticisms anyway are are pretty good and and i think you need something like the essence energy distinction um but we would say that god's essence is simple his nature is simple but his activities are multiple okay all right fair enough uh dale did you have a comment uh on that or or a follow-up question uh i guess uh, just just to clarify for the audience because uh, philosopher in philosophy there are two different types right of nature so there's the thing referring to the individual essence and then there's a kind nature so did you want to just kind of like describe what what's the difference there and how that relates at all or um by individual essence you mean like a leibnizian sort of essence or yeah yeah it's it's the eye. okay sure sure um so yeah this this is important so um something like planting uses the word essence to really mean uh what people sometimes call an individual essence or a leibnizian essence 
So that would be uh, a set of properties that are necessary and sufficient for being identical to a particular individual. So in that sense, I have a different essence from Dale and Dale has a different individual essence from Tyler and so forth. So that's the, the properties that kind of pick you out as a unique individual in any possible world. Um, a, what people sometimes call a kind essence or an Aristotelian essence. Um, I don't know if that's the best term for it, but anyway, um, uh, that would be just the, the properties that are necessary and sufficient for being a member of a certain natural kind. In other words, a natural sort of grouping of things. So for example, um, traditionally, let's say uh, being a rational animal is necessary and sufficient for being human. So that's a kind essence. So we all have the same kind essence. Um, but I, I will say that that actually is different from uh, really like Aristotle's actual view, which is that a, a nature is just a, 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 a source of activity. Right. And, and I think that is something that confuses people, too, sometimes because they they want to treat nature like it's just kind of a list of properties that that are necessary and sufficient for being a member of a kind. And and uh, they don't quite get that. It's strictly speaking, Aristotle just thinks there has to be something to explain um, the fact that that certain powers are kind of clumped together Um and that's what he calls the the nature. I can talk more about that if if you want. But he then argues. So th then the question is, what is a nature? Uh, and there, you know, he goes through. There there are people who thought that nature, the nature of things, was its matter. Um, so it wouldn't be a definition, right? It, the nature, because the source of motion. If you're a materialist, you think the source of motion is really just the matter, right? Um, Aristotle thought it was the form, and that kind of presupposes his hylomorphism. He thinks everything's kind of composed of matter and form. So for him, the big question is sort of, is nature matter, or is nature form, or is it both of them together? Um, and so Aristotle eventually kind of argues that the nature of things that have natures um, uh, is their form. Um, but that's something he argues for, uh, not, not just kind of, it's not just sort of the definition of nature. Also, um, what that means, every, every nature, Aristotle thinks that every nature is an essence, but not every essence is a nature. Um, so an artifact has an essence, but it doesn't have a nature, at least qua artifacts. Like a bed, qua bed, doesn't have a nature. Um, its nature is just the nature of the wood that it's that it's made out of. So for for the artifact, the the matter is the nature. Um, for an organic living thing, the the nature is the form. So every nature will will be an essence, but some things have essences but don't have natures. For for Aristotle, gotcha. So Make someone. Yeah. Right on. Uh, we did so. Max the Confessor coming in with a $9.99 oh super chat. Yeah. What's Bo's view on the Neopolemites who speak about the energies as relations, extrinsic attributes, and the scholastic doctrine of no real relations between God and the world? And I clarified that uh, he meant God okay. there. Yeah. Um, 
He says releases extrinsic attributes. Yeah, I don't know. I feel awful because <laughs> someone spent ten bucks on this, um, uh, and I don't. I don't feel like I have a, a, any anything useful to say about that. Um, um, who who are the neo palamites? Because I don't even know. Well, this is kind of uh, in in modern Orthodox theology. A lot of people have um, kind of looked back to Gregory Palamas, and um, I don't know. I, I guess I'm not sure if Neopolemite is if they like the term Neopolemite or if that's derogatory or what. But but uh, they just think they're Palamites. Um, but um. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I don't think the scholastic doctrine of, of no real relations um, between God and the world um, is as bad as some people have, have claimed. I mean, I think there's problems or that, you know, disagreements we would have. But but um, like like scholastics, I, don't, I think, as I understand it anyway, I mean, but once you get into like late medieval philosophy, it's kind of outside of my my expertise. But as I understand them, it's not like they would really want to say like there's no um, there's no relation between God and the world or something like that. It's it's just kind of um, it's just sort of the direction of things. So um so what that what they'll usually say is something like that you know whatever relation you want to talk about between god and the world it's not real on the part of god but it's real on the part of the creature and that just has to do with their their way of understanding relations as um they don't think of a relation as this thing like between two terms they think of a relation as like a property that i have that sort of points towards you, right? And you have a property that sort of points towards me. And so we have these properties that kind of point towards God, but mm -hmm. God himself is just sort of there and doesn't doesn't have any changes in, in himself. So they, they would say like there are true relational facts about God and they they can change over time. It's just this what's changing is is us. An, an example of that is is like um you know, once upon a time, my nephew was sh shorter than me, uh, and now he's taller than me. So mm -hmm. I, it used to be the case that Bo is taller than his nephew. Now it's the case that Bo is shorter, but I haven't changed, right? That's nothing about me. What, what's changed is him. Um, right. And so anyway, I think that, um, I mean, in that case, of course, we both have a relation to each other, but you could have, here's an example of a, of a, relation that's real in one person but not in another if i was obsessed let's say i um i'm old i don't even know who's who's cool anymore let's so let's say i am obsessed with Katy perry or something i i start stalking her and going through her garbage and all this you know uh and so so katie perry has an extra you know stalker now so that's something that's a fact about her that's changed right but she has no idea that I even exist and she's just going about her day-to-day -day life, right? Um, so there's not really any real, there's not any property in her that has any reference to me, right? right. She's not thinking about me or doing things different, whatever. It's me that I've got this property of being obsessed with Katy Perry or whoever's cool these days. Um, 
So I have a real property. It's the, this classic will say it's real in me, but not in not in her. And that's just what they say about God is like God doesn't have any um, real relation. I mean, I, it, it, it maybe is still not, you know, um, maybe it's not a super satisfying view. But anyway, it's not it's not like they would want to say there's just sort of nothing you know, no relation between God and people. They just, they just want to cash it all out as true in virtue of facts about creatures and not sort of intrinsic facts about God. But I do think they have a, I think they have a problem in, in not having anything other than the essence, right? Just kind of identifying the energies with the essence because they really can't say that God, I mean, I don't know. I don't really understand. <laughs> so that, you know, it, it's, it, it's, I, I feel like having the energies there, like at least lets you say there's something kind of going from God to world, right? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, e- even if it's not something where we can like affect God or something, it's still like, seems like there should be something that is going from God to the world. So I don't know, that's that's about the best I can say. I, I'm not really up on the whole um, neopolemite debate and all this sort of thing so anyway i apologize for not having anything more intelligent to say about that no oh, well i appreciate it Bo. um and also if you want to again super chats are a awesome awesome way to financially uh support our ministry we also do cash app and venmo as well but if you do send us a super chat uh, i will get that question out as soon as i possibly can uh whereas if you ask a question and um and it's not a super chat, then we'll probably wait until the end. And if we go for a little bit of long time, um, I don't know if it will get answered. So I can't promise that that all questions will get answered. Um, but whenever it comes to super chats, I will get them up and make sure to ask Bo. Or if you got a question for Dell and I, um, we have answers too. No, I'm just fine. But okay, uh, Bo, I said that yeah. I wanted to ask a fourth question, but I'm, I'm actually going to skip this because I think yeah. you had mentioned it earlier. Uh, you had mentioned er- we have, you know, this concept of simplicity and Irenaeus. And yeah, I know that's yeah. that's that's pretty early. We get the concept from Scripture, I believe. Um, and so if you want to go ahead and give your presentation, sure. that would um, be uh, that would be great. Let's see. Um, well, yeah, let's see. Yeah, let's see if this will work. So will this share my screen? Oh, I think it's not letting me are you trying to share like a tab or a um, window oh you know what where am i um maybe i need to um to put this on the same maybe put this on the same screen here so share screen it's not letting me click on share um so if you click present down there at the bottom, like oh, share screen go. is. Um, uh-huh. Oh, there we go. There we go. Okay. Got so there it is. Here it is. Right. Now, can you see my the presentation? I'm adding okay. it to the stream. There oh, is. okay. Sorry. We were both trying to do it and it kept going off. <laughs> okay. Okay. So you can see that? Is that? Yeah. Yep. Okay, good. Oh, Perfect. Right. So, yeah, I'll just try to go through this. This is something I put together for... Um, uh, a different purpose. So it's, uh, I'll, I'll have to, um, um, in any way, it's not maybe optimized for this, but I'll, I'll kind of make some comments as we go along. I have a few quotes to get uh, up here. Um, 
from Basil and Gregory Nazianzen. Basil says there is one God because there is one Father. Uh, whoever introduces two first principles preaches two gods. So that's from St. Basil's uh, homily against the Sabalians. That's modalists, uh, Anomoyans, and Pneumatomachians. The Anomoyans were Arians, and Pneumatomachians were people who didn't think the Holy Spirit was divine. Um, Gregory Nazianzen's Oration 23, he says, it's more in keeping with the greater majesty of the first cause to be the source of divinity rather than of creatures. That's a, a oration he was giving. He's talking about the Arians who wanted to, um, who, who wanted to sort of say that the father, you know, uh, was, was greater than, than the son by being, you know, having a different nature. Right. Uh, and Gregory Nazianzen says, referring to the father as the first cause, you know, the father would be even greater if he could be the source of divinity Right, rather than only of, of creatures. Um, so those are kind of some uh, some quotes to sort of get you thinking about uh, what I call monarchical Trinitarianism. So in, uh, in analytic philosophy, um, there have been two big questions, as I call it. So the I'll call this the tritheism problem. Uh, if the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are three distinct divine persons, then are they three gods? Um, and then there's what I call the who is God problem, which is however you solve the, the tritheism problem. What's the reference of the word God uh, in the Bible and in the Nicene Creed and so forth um, when we use God like a name for an individual? So who's who's capital G God or the God? Um, and that's something that really Dale Tuggy has has uh, pressed a lot more. A lot of people have focused on the tritheism issue and haven't really addressed the who is God problem, but Tuggy always kind of brings up the, this issue. So is God just the father, uh, just the son, just the spirit? Is it all three persons together or all three persons maybe separately? Or is there some fourth thing called God? Um, or is it the Trinity, um, which is also sort of a fourth thing, or it's a thing that's composed of the three? So just what does that refer to, right? Who is God? And what I call the two big answers, two big questions, two big answers, the answer to the tritheism problem is supposed to be, you know, they're supposed to just be one God, not three. So one kind of desideratum for a, a model of the Trinity is that um, it should have the result that there's just one God, right? And the who is God uh, problem, the, the answer to that is the New Testament consistently identifies God with the Father. Uh, and so that's what Tuggy kind of always uh, presses is that, you know, if you read through the New Testament, it's pretty clear um, there are there are a lot of his argument is basically, you know, there's a lot of uses of the word God that are kind of generic and you wouldn't be able to tell from the context who it's referring to. But whenever it's not, whenever you can tell from the context um, who it's referring to, it almost always is referring to the father. So you'll see things like, um, you know, the oh whatever, you know, the love of God, the communion of the Holy Spirit and the grace of Jesus Christ to be with all of you. Um, even the, in the phrase like the son of God, right? You're referring to the father as God. Uh, and he'll admit, you know, that there are some cases where Jesus is referred to as God, but his argument is kind of that the statistical distribution isn't what you would expect um, in a, from a kind of egalitarian view where all three persons are kind of equally God. So there's, there's maybe 12 times that Jesus gets called theos. That's the maximum. I think anyone, um, claims, um, most scholars, I think say more like seven of those or something might be legitimate. And they're, they're all, almost all of them are kind of controversial, um, except for maybe one or two. 
So anyway, there's a few times Jesus gets called Theos, uh, and most of those are without the definite article. There's a few um, that have the definite article. So most of it looks like it's being used as like a predicate and not like a name. Um, there's, again, maximum, uh, maybe one or two times the Holy Spirit gets called Theos, and those are controversial too. But then there's like hundreds of times that the Father gets called Theos, uh, and including with the definite article. And so his argument is just that's not the distribution you would expect if, if the authors of the New Testament were egalitarians about the Trinity. Um, even the Nicene Creed, right, says, I believe in one God, the Father. We saw Basil says there's one God because there's one Father and, and so forth. So how does that work? So um, answers to the, the who is God problem uh, on the two, the two big models in Trinitarian uh, whatever, philosophy or uh, analytic theology. Um, the, the big models that people talk about are social Trinitarianism, which generally says that capital G God is kind of all three of the persons taken together. Um, relative identity Trinitarianism says that each one of the divine persons taken individually is capital G God. Uh, and monarchical Trinitarianism says that it's one of the divine persons, namely the Father, that is capital G God, um, despite all the persons being fully divine and sharing the divine nature and so forth. So I kind of have um, some diagrams here to help people sort of understand this. So relative identity Trinitarianism basically says the Father is not identical to the Son or the Holy Spirit, and the Son and the Holy Spirit aren't identical to each other. But then they're all identical to God. And so how does that work? Is there like a fourth thing called God? Uh, well, it's kind of tricky. Um, so, uh, and one question here that I'll, I'll go through is what is a God? Uh, what does it mean to say something is God or is a God? So on relative identity theories, it doesn't really matter because you if this works, then you just get one of them. Whatever it is, uh, there's just one, right? There's just one God. The, the problem is that that's incompatible with the standard logic of identity, which says if, if A equals B and B equals C, then A equals C, right? So on, on the standard logic of identity, if the Father equals God and then the Son equals God, then the Father equals the Son, right? And so you have to come up with a different kind of logic that rejects uh, standard identity, uh, which is obviously very controversial. And another issue is that there's not really any immediate solution to the who is God problem. So you, you solve the three gods problem, but you have to do it at the expense of developing kind of a non-standard logic. But I would argue you don't really get an obvious solution to the who is God problem because there's really no explanation why the capital G God, you know, would refer to the father in the New Testament on this view and not equally to the son and the spirit. Right. Um, it's just kind of left a, a mystery. So that's that's relative identity Trinitarianism. Sometimes they might instead of saying, you know, the persons are identical to God, it might be that they're identical to the divine nature. Um, but either way, you, you get kind of the, the same problems. Okay, so social Trinitarianism uh, says instead of making the persons identical to God or the divine nature, uh, you've just got this divine nature that is a property 
that the persons have. So the Father has the divine nature, Son has the divine nature, the Holy Spirit has the divine nature. And there's, uh, on social Trinitarianism, there's going to be a distinction made between two different senses of the word God. So uh, in a kind of little g sense, right, you can say the Father is God, meaning is divine, right? It's this property that he has, the divine nature. Um, and uh, capital G God is going to be the whole Trinity, right? So you kind of gather these things up together and they form this whole thing called the Trinity, and that's the capital G God. Um, this is, I should point out, I, this is kind of uh, what I, again, put together for a, for a different presentation, but um, William Lane Craig's view uh, is going to be a little bit different from this, because he's going to say that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit don't have the divine nature, that it's just the Trinity that has the divine nature. So, but... Um, I think I'm not sure all social Trinitarians do that. Um, but in any case, either either way, um, there's going to be a, a distinction between two different senses, right? So there's going to be a little g sense of God, such that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are God in that sense, and then a kind of capital G sense uh, of God where it's the Trinity. Um, and it's not super clear what those senses are going to amount to. The, the reason I put this question mark here is, um, again, if, so, and this is kind of partly my, my criticism of Craig, if, if the father had the divine nature, the son has the divine nature and the Holy Spirit has the divine nature, but then God doesn't, uh, and this is Leftow's dilemma that we'll talk about. They'll, they'll have a diagram of it in a little bit, but, but that's weird, right? It's weird to say that God doesn't have the divine nature. Like why? Why call it God if it doesn't have the divine nature? Or why call it the divine nature if God doesn't have it, right? It's not the nature that God has. That would be kind of odd. If you go the William Lane Craig route, he he goes the other direction. He says, okay, well, God, the Trinity has the divine nature, but then the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit don't have the divine nature. So then the question is like, well, why call them God if they don't have the divine nature? And his answer is basically because they're parts of God. Um, and I, I can come back to that in a little bit, but um, uh, it, it raises some further questions, right? So do the persons have a nature at all? Um, uh, if, they, if they do have a nature, uh, is that nature divine or is it non-divine? Um, if they don't have a nature at all, uh, or if they have a nature, but it's not the divine nature, um, then you can't really say that the son has the divine nature, right? Which he does when he gets to Christology. He wants to say that the son has two natures, one human and one divine. Um, in fact, you can't even say the father has the divine nature, which is which is odd, right? And like Dale was saying earlier, I do agree with this. I mean, that you know, uh, barring some serious cognitive impairments or something, like you should believe that Christ has the divine nature. Um, that, that does seem like an essential part of, of Christianity. Um, and, and so you, you get a result where you can't really say that. On the other hand, you know, your other option is to say, yeah, the persons do have a nature and it's like a divine nature. It's just not the divine nature. Um, then you have two different divine natures. And I would argue um, you don't really get their, the solution to the tritheism problem anymore, right? Because you still have um, you end up with just sort of one sense in which there's one God, 
but then another sense in which there's three gods. Um, so I'll, I can go into that more in more detail later, but, but also it conflicts with the new Testament, right? So the, the new Testament says that, that God is the father. This says God is the Trinity. Um, so it, it conflicts with, uh, with the new Testament. Um, why, again, why is the Trinity, the capital G God instead of the father? Well, you could just kind of leave it mysterious or you could say, well, the Trinity has the divine nature, but then you get this problem with whether the persons have any divine nature in any sense. Um, so either God lacks the divine nature or if we adjust it, so the persons, uh, so he has the divine nature, then the persons don't have the divine nature. And um, either way, you kind of get problems. So um, a lot of times people think that monarchical Trinitarianism sounds really weird, like how can the Father be the one God or capital G God, but the persons are all divine. And so here's the here's the big difference. If this is if this is kind of your standard social Trinitarian view, where you've got the Trinity is capital G God, uh, but the persons all have the divine nature, so they're God in some sense of being divine. Uh, here's the difference between social Trinitarianism and monarchical Trinitarianism. Boom. <laughs> so, so there's the difference, right? It's, it's just, we're going to switch the label. Uh, instead of calling the Trinity uh, God with a capital G, uh, it's going to be the Father that's, that's capital G God. So that's, that's really the only, the only big difference. Now you can, uh, now once you do that, then, then you can ask the question, like, do we really have to treat the Trinity as a whole um, as though it's kind of a fourth entity that is composed out of the three, um, rather than just being shorthand for the three, right? Like in Greek, the word trios just means triad. And basically the result is it doesn't matter, right? You don't, you, I mean, you could say that the Trinity is this thing that the three compose, but you don't really need to because it's not God and it doesn't have the divine nature. So on this view, um, what is a God? Well, so you still are going to have to have two senses of God like you do in uh, in social Trinitarianism. You have the little g sense that just means that they're divine. And then you have the capital G sense. And now what, what you do is you say that means the first cause or the uncaused cause. And so you have this view of the monarchy of the father or what sometimes is called uh, the doctrine of eternal generation and eternal procession. So the father eternally uh, begets the son and the father eternally spirates the Holy Spirit, um, which is uh, kind of the traditional view from Nicene Trinitarianism. And that's that's what capital G God means. And so that explains why um, uh, all three persons have the divine nature. Um, and also it's true that God has the divine nature but that doesn't give you four different things that have the divine nature. And you don't have to kind of pick and choose which one is it God that's going to get the divine nature or the persons or which. Um, and there's a reason why the father is called capital G God, right? Because he's the one that's uh, absolutely say in, in absolutely every sense. And the son and the spirits uh, are, are generated or, or in some sense eternally begotten or spirited by the father. So uh, what's not to like about uh, monarchical Trinitarianism? You know, if it gets the right results. Um, uh, and by, by the way, I guess I should say um, uh, I, I could say more about the, the tritheism problem. Um, so monarchical Trinitarianism would say 
um, if you're talking about the the other sense of the term God, kind of just you know things that have the divine nature, um, uh, we it would reject the idea that we count by the relation of identity. And I I argue you kind of have to to do that. I can talk about that more later if you want. But if it gets the right results, so uh, you know, it gets around the tritheism problem, it gets the right results for the who is God problem. Um, why you know? Why do anything else? And basically, I, I would say uh, oh, to abbreviate. Sorry. Do you mind if is it okay if I just interrupt quickly for? Oh a quick sure, sure, yeah, sure. Question, just because so so someone in the audience, I think, was asking about both both our models, William and Craig's, and and yours. You mm -hmm. have two senses of a divine nature. Yeah. So someone... uh, not not so not two divine natures, um, just two different senses of the word God senses of the word god okay cool right. so um right. i know william Lane Craig uses an example of like a cat right it the cat has right. a feline nature but the cat's right. skeleton you could also say it's feline did, did you want to just kind of quickly give that example to explain this sure as yeah i could i mean maybe uh maybe i can kind of up here so um yeah what what craig does is he says um so again, on Craig's view, he doesn't say the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit have the divine nature. It's capital G God, the Trinity, has the divine nature. So he, yeah, he gives the example of a cat. Um, so a cat uh, is feline in the sense of having the nature of a cat, the feline nature. Um, uh, a cat's skeleton and a cat's DNA are kind of parts or aspects of a cat, and we would call the skeleton feline. Uh, we would call the uh, the DNA feline uh, DNA, but they don't have the nature of a cat, right? They're just kind of parts of a cat, which is um, so. He, he talks about what uh, the the phenomenon of analogical predication. So basically, um, univocal predication is when a word means the same thing uh, in in two different uses of it. Uh, equivocal predication is when a word means two different things. Um, so, for example, if I, you know, I can use the word bank in the sense of a financial institution, or I can use the word bank, meaning the edge of a river, um, that's equivocation. Those are two different senses of the of the word bank. Analogical predication is a it's a kind of equivocation, but it's not kind of an outright equivocation like bank and bank where there's just no relation between the two. So feline and feline. Um, in the case of like a cat and a cat skeleton and a cat's DNA, those are those mean sort of different things, right? So a cat is feline in the sense of actually having the feline nature. Um, the skeleton is feline just in the sense of being a part of a cat. So it's not like a total equivocation, but it's not univocal either. Um, and and so that's his yeah his kind of solution is that God is so the Trinity is God in the sense of having a divine nature. Uh, the persons are God or divine, let's say, in the sense of being parts of God. Um, but again, my issue with that is is um, you know if you just sort of stop there and say the persons just don't have the divine nature, like if they don't have any nature. Uh, then you can't say that the son has the divine nature and the human nature. Um, and if you say, well, they have a nature, it's just not the divine nature. 
where it's not a divine nature, then, well, okay, he has two natures, but they're not human and divine. It's human and another non-divine nature. Um, if on the other hand, you say, okay, there's really two divine natures, then, uh, okay, well, then you can have the son having a divine nature, but then you really do have a sense in which the father, son, and Holy spirit is each a God. And you, you need some other solution to the tritheism problem on, on the view that I've talked about here. So, uh, monarchical Trinitarianism, you, um, Sorry, this is going to take a minute to to go over here. But you you don't have two different natures. Um, what you have is you have two different senses uh, of the term God. So in one sense, God means just a thing that has the divine nature, right? And in the other sense, it's not that that this capital G sense of God is a different nature, right? It's just that it doesn't mean a thing of a certain nature. It just means a thing that uh, is is the uncaused cause, right? Is the the ultimate, the source without source. So you have two senses of of the word God, right? Not every uh, not every noun expresses a nature, right? So, like we said before, cups don't have natures. Um, if I say something like so and so is um, president or king. Um, king isn't, uh, doesn't express a nature. Um, it just is sort of a position in a hierarchy, right? Or CEO or something like that. So that the capital G sense of God, um, uh, isn't an, a different nature. It's just, uh, to say that the father is, uh, is the uncaused cause of, of everything else. And the other sense of God is that they, um, they have the divine nature. So, um, I was going to say sort of, you know, what, why do people uh, object to this? And just to kind of uh, collapse a whole ton of history into a, a little story, um, th there have been a number of shifts in the way people speak and think about the Trinity over the centuries. So Augustine is the first person who starts referring to the Trinity as the one God in, in John 17, 3. Um, and he says that it talks about this in the De Trinitate. Um, but he still thought of the father as the source without source, right? So he still says this, that the, the father is the principium sine principium. So he still believes in the, the metaphysical or theological sort of picture of God, the father as, as the first, first cause, the uncaused cause. But, um, but he starts sort of speaking a little bit differently. And by the way, there's actually only in the De Trinitate, really outside of De Trinitate, um, he mostly uses the word God to just refer to the Father, um, which is interesting to note that um, uh, in his like sermons and in his commentaries and things, he he still speaks kind of the other way. And there's a lot of other uh, stuff uh, going on in the in the Middle Ages that I'll kind of kind of go past too. But but a big shift happens with Calvin in the 1500s. So he starts calling the Son "asse" or uncaused. Um, but he and, and that was a big controversial thing. Um, a, a lot of people attacked him for it. So both like Unitarians and Roman Catholics uh, and some Lutherans would uh, would attack him. <clears throat> um, but even in his theology, if you if you read carefully what he says, he says that the son is asse, meaning uncaused. But then he says things like the father causes the son to be uncaused. 
<laughs> which is kind of sounds a little weird, but um, basically what it amounts to is he made this distinction between what he called being essentially ase versus hypostatically or personally ase. So he he says that he thinks of aseity as kind of a property of the nature. Uh, and he says, well, since the son is getting the same nature as the father, then he the nature is ase because it's the father's and it's the same nature in the son. So the son is ase in that sense. But he did he does say that the person of the son or the hypostasis or the the individuality of the son is caused by the father. And then the father just gives him this nature that's ase. So what he says is that he, he again, that's kind of a complicated distinction, but the, the upshot of it is he wants to say there's a sense in which all the persons are ase, but there's also this sense for Calvin in which only the father is ase and the son and the spirit still aren't. So even he, although he likes to verbally sort of say that the son is ase, um, he still maintained the monarchy of the father in, in some sense. It's not until uh, around the time of Herman Alexander Roll in the 1600s, kind of late 1600s, there were some other people around the same time. So there might have been someone that beat him to it. But around that time uh, is when you get the first people really uh, literally just rejecting the doctrine of eternal generation and eternal procession. Um, and so Roll um, uh, really said the son and the spirit are ase just in every sense. They're just uncaused. Um, and in his time, uh, everybody said he was a big heretic and they, they hated him. I think after he died, his colleagues wrote some big thing where they badmouthed him or something. But anyway, you know, that's the first time it sort of shows up, but everyone just uh, condemned it as heretical. But, but there was kind of a, a tiny strand of the Reformed tradition that, um, uh, that, that sort of latched onto that. So it kind of starts in the late 1600s, early 1700s. But but doesn't really gain a, a lot of traction because everybody thought it was heretical. But but then in the late 1800s, um, you get uh, these Princeton theologians, B.B. Warfield and others um, in the late 1800s that start adopting that Roellian sort of view, this egalitarian view that all three persons are ase uh, in absolutely every sense. And a lot of it had to do with their... Um, interactions with Unitarians. Actually, all of this kind of is. Calvin liked to say the son is ase in, in his arguments with Unitarians. Um, I'm not I, I'm not quite as sure about role, but Warfield definitely was influenced by these debates he was having with Unitarians. And I think they just sort of thought, I don't know, either, either they thought it was easier to say the, the persons are all ase, or they just were convinced by some Unitarians that that's like part of the divine nature or something. So anyway, it's it's in the late 1800s, early 1900s uh, that you start getting um, uh, more traction, especially in America, uh, among these uh, Reformed theologians, this, that uh, that the Son and Spirit are ase. And then, kind of by the the late you know 20th century and and now in the in the 21st century, uh, this egalitarian view becomes pretty widespread among evangelical Protestants. I'd, I'd say there's still there's certainly people who um, who resist it, but it's but it's a fairly common view among uh, evangelicals. It's still it's uh, obviously rejected by Orthodox and Catholics and Lutherans and Anglicans and, and kind of the majority, I guess, of the Reformed tradition. But it's but it's a pretty big deal, uh, uh, at least in kind of America and Western Europe. So um, 
why uh so so just to to kind of conceptualize um why this is and sort of what the options are um i'll give you an inconsistent set of propositions that so it's it's inconsistent so you have to reject one of these and which one you reject will kind of uh determine you know which which camp you might go in so here's the idea of monarchia which we mentioned earlier with the talk about the divine council and, and all that that in late second temple Judaism, that was kind of the word for monotheism. The word, I didn't mention this, but the word monotheism um, doesn't appear, uh, it doesn't appear in Greek until the, the 14th century. Um, and it appears in English, I think, I think in the 15 or 1600s, maybe. <clears throat> um, uh, prior to that, the, the word uses monarchia. Uh, and that's the the view that there's only one archi, one source, right? So there's this one uncaused cause. And then a second proposition is the monarchia of the father. So that's the idea that the father is this uncaused cause. Um, another proposition that's called this anti-modalism. So the father, son, and Holy Spirit are not identical. They're all distinct from each other. If you reject that, then you're a modalist. Uh, uh, let's say anti-Arianism or the, the homoousion that says the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit share the same generic nature. So we talked earlier about the difference between an individual essence and a kind essence. This says they, they at least have the same kind essence or usia, um, or at least nature. And then what I'll call the, the eunomian premise. So eunomius was this kind of infamous extreme Arian um, who he just said that um, he didn't even say the Father and the Son are similar or have a similar nature or anything like that. He just said the father and the son have just different natures. Um, and he had this argument that aseity um, being uncaused is, uh, he really thought it just was the divine nature, but anyway, you can say it is, or it's part of, or entailed by this generic kind essence um, of the uncaused cause. So it's not just God's individual essence, it's the, the kind essence. And so obviously these can't all fit together, right? So if the father is the only uncaused cause um, and being uncaused is part of God's generic kind essence, then, then the father and son and spirit can't all have the same kind essence because they're not all uncaused, right? If they're all distinct and only the father is the, the uncaused cause. So you have to get rid of one of those views. And in antiquity, no one considered uh, rejecting the monarchy of the fathers. So whether they were Orthodox or Arian or modalist or what, everybody just kind of took for granted the monarchy of the father. So uh, the classical sort of Trinitarian view rejects modalism and it rejects Arianism. And of course, they don't question the monarchy of the fathers. So they reject this eunomian premise that says aseity is part of God's kind essence. They would say aseity is uh, is necessarily one of God's properties, but they would say it's God's uh, individual essence. Um, it's God meaning the Father, right? So they reject the idea that it's part of this, this generic nature. Uh, and so that gives you that classical Trinitarian picture. So you've got you know, one God, the Father, uh, and then he eternally causes the Son and the Spirit who are, and they're all God in the sense of having the divine nature, right? Um, if, you, uh, if you don't buy that view, right, so the Arian view, the Eunomian view, obviously accepts the Eunomian premise that aseity is part of God's kind essence. And the Eunomians, of course, rejected modalism. 
um, and they still accepted the monarchy of the father. So they were Arians, right? They rejected this, this claim that the father, son, and spirit have the same generic nature. So uh, the Arian view says, well, you can't give the, the generic nature to the son and the spirit. So for Arians, you've got one God, the father, and he's got the divine nature eternally causes the son and the spirit that actually they have a little bit different view on the son and spirit. But anyway, basically the son and spirit don't have the divine nature. So a, a problem here is in what sense are the son and spirit God, right? So you have to have, again, multiple divine natures. Um, and a lot of people don't know this about Arianism because it, it gets kind of misrepresented uh, popularly, but Arians absolutely said that the Son of God is divine and that the Holy Spirit is divine. Um, Arius, or I mean, uh, uh, Eunomius, who's kind of, again, the most extreme Arian, um, that, I mean, people were just kind of horrified by, by Eunomius. He was, you know, thought to be way worse than, than Arius was. But, you know, he has a passage in his writings where he says very clearly, he's like, you know, don't, don't anybody say that I'm you know, trying to reject the divinity of, of Christ um, or his, you know, his immortality and, and wisdom and goodness and blah, blah, blah. Um, he says, you know, I'm not doing that. I'm just kind of, you know, uh, you know, distinguishing between the sense in which uh, the father is divine and, and the sense in which the son is divine. So he, he does sort of want to say that the son is divine. But, but again, the problem is it seems like then you have to have a second divine nature. Um, <clears throat> And uh, so that's kind of that's the the Aryan view. Obviously, you could also be a, a modalist. Uh, modalists would um, uh, would allow that Asadi could be part of the kind essence uh, of the Father and Son. They don't care because for modalists, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are just the same thing, right? So that's that's sort of the modalist view. There's there's God uh, and Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are just kind of three different words or names that refer to this one uh, capital G God. Um, but of course, that's the problem with it is just just three different names for the same thing. Um, it's not clear how the father uh, and the son could have uh, how you could say, you know, how, how Christ could say the father is greater than I, um, how the, you know, the father can send the son and the Holy Spirit. But nobody ever says they send the father and, and so on. So. So those are kind of the big views in antiquity, because, again, in antiquity, nobody really questioned the monarchy of the father. So you just kind of have to get one of those three sorts of views. So what's happened in um, in recent years? It, you know, why why would you you know not like this kind of classical Trinitarian picture? What what has basically happened is that um, certain people like Craig and, and Ryan Mullins and some other people, um, basically, they accept this eunomian premise that aseity is part of God's generic kind essence. So instead of being the individual essence, it's part of God's kind essence. And kind of like in antiquity, just no one thought to question the monarchy of the father. Today, people don't really think about the monarchy of the father as much, but, but everyone sort of knows that modalism has been officially condemned as a heresy and Arianism has been officially condemned as a heresy. So they kind of have to hold those constant, right? So then if you also accept the, the eunomian premise, then you basically have to go back and reject one of these things. You either have to say there's one uncaused cause, uh, but it's just not the father, or you have to say there's more than one uncaused cause. So I kind of call this the, the three brothers view that, um, 
you've got the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that all sort of, in some sense, derive from or depend on capital G God, which could be the divine. I label this the divine nature. It could be the Trinity as a whole. Um, so I call that the the three brothers view, right? They're there's they're all kind of equal, um, but they're sort of subordinate to this big capital G God that's the the Trinity. Um, the problem here is that all three persons, right, even God the Father, um, are all caused by or or dependent on or grounded, have whatever language you want to use. Um, but they're all sort of subordinate to some higher thing called capital G God, right? Um, so, you know, really, um, you know, if, if you were worried about the sun being like subordinate, right, then this doesn't really help you, right? It just makes the father also subordinate, right? In, in addition to the son and the Holy Spirit. Um, the other way you could go is to say, yeah, the father is, is an uncaused cause, but there's not exactly one uncaused cause, right? So we'll just get rid of the capital G God thing, right? And you've just got three. So I call this the three amigos uh, kind of Trinitarian view. So here they're all sort of equal. Um, they don't derive from something further back, but there's just three, you know, equal first principles. And the big issue here is kind of in what sense is that not three gods, right? I mean, it just looks like you've got three first principles. Certainly rejects, you know, the monarchia, which is, you know, again, the, the word for monotheism um, from antiquity, you know, from pre-Christian Judaism up through the, the Middle Ages and in, into the early modern period. Um, so it looks like looks like tritheism. Um, and I'll mention this too. Uh, Craig is really unclear about this. And, and Dale might have kind of a variation on, on some of Craig's uh, views. But, but I find Craig really unclear. So he'll say things like, um, uh, the, he says the persons are say because the Trinity as a whole is say, and they're like parts of it. But normally, I mean, normally you think of a whole, and he does use that language that the persons are like parts of, of the Trinity, which is the whole. Uh, and normally we think of a whole as dependent on its parts. Um, so you would think then that God would not be say; He would be dependent on the Father, Son, and Spirit uh, who are say. On the other hand, you know, you could be like a holist about, uh, about things. So some people do think that holes, or at least certain kinds of holes, are more fundamental than, than the parts. So you could do that, but then you'd have to, you, you just have the three brothers view, right? You'd have God as a whole being say, um, but the persons wouldn't be say. Um, so I find him kind of uh, unclear about that. Um, so also I wanted to mention this, just uh, why Orthodox Christians reject the filioque, um, which is Latin for and the son. So in the West, people, um, the Pope uh, kind of unilaterally inserted this word into the creed. So when they say the Nicene Creed, they'll say the Holy Spirit. Um, so when we, when we say the, the creed, the original form of it is the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father, like it says in the Gospel of John. Um, but in the West, people will say the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and from the Son, which is ex patre filioque, and the Son. Um, and again, that was something that the Pope just kind of inserted. Um, and I don't really know why Protestants re retain it, because um, they seems like they 
wouldn't feel like they would have to, but they all kind of have. But that was kind of the occasion for the great schism was that the, the Eastern churches wouldn't insert, wouldn't change the creed. And they, they didn't think the Pope had the authority to just unilaterally do that. So that was kind of what, what split things. Um, and we still use the creed that's from the actual ecumenical councils. Um, and people will always say it's really like an esoteric argument. It gets really complicated. Parts of it get a little bit complicated, but part of it is really pretty simple, which is just in, in monarchical Trinitarianism, right? You've got the one cause, the one uncaused cause, that's the father. Um, the most obvious way to read the filioque gives you two capital G gods, right? You've got the father and the son uh, being kind of co-causes of the Holy Spirit. And that's not really what any any Westerners ever really, really meant by it. Um, they don't think because they think the son is begotten by the father. But if you, you know, if you do it, so like the father begets the son uh, and then the son like spirates the spirit, then that's really, you know, from the father through the son, right? The Holy Spirit is ultimately coming from the father through the son. So it shouldn't be put in terms of, you know, from the father and the son. Usually what uh, uh, Westerners will do is, is something like this. They'll say the father generates the son, and then it's kind of the father and the son together spirate the Holy Spirit. Um, but then it's that does seem like a problem with divine simplicity. And it just seems like um, either way, it's, it's still kind of from the father through the son, right? So we basically just say, um, you know, if, if capital G God means the, the uncaused cause, the first cause, then, you know, one way to look at the filioque just gives you two gods. So definitely shouldn't be in the creed. And the other ways of looking at, at it look more like from the father through the son. And so it's just kind of not precise. So uh, in Greek, ekporephetai means to go out of, not not go through. Uh, so it's just not accurate. It shouldn't shouldn't be in the creed. So I think I will, I'll stop there. I have a few more little slides, but I think we'll, um, that's probably good because I've probably blabbered on for, for long enough. So I'll stop there and, and let you guys comment. No, no. Okay. Yeah, no. Um, awesome presentation. I think you're very thorough and for the most part, yeah, you, you kind of covered exactly my model. So I, I do take Lynn Craig, I, I copied my better kind of thing, you know, um, and yeah, I'm pretty much on the same board as him. And yeah. this, uh, you know, I'm a social Trinitarian, um, you know, so what, what is God? The question, what is God? Um, basically, he's a, he's a soul, a single soul uh, mm -hmm. that exists, uh, say, or is self-existent. And it has uh, three sets, uh, three persons within it. Um, so I think um, you were, you mentioned this uh, chart, but you never showed it. Um, so let's bring that up here. So oh yeah, yeah, the left out thing. There you go. Yeah. So so he's right, right? There are two uh, types of, of ways that one can be divine. So obviously, for for me, only the Trinity is God proper. The Godhead yeah. is God. So, you know, it's an essential property of being God that you have to be tri-personal. None of the three individual people are tri-personal. So, um, yeah, we, in this way, we would say there are two ways to be divine in, and the persons are divine in light of being not just a part. The only thing I would correct with what you said, it's, it's not just that yeah. they're a part of the Godhead, but it's that they are a, um, a distinct and indivisible essential part. Uh, Sure. Of it. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, 
But yeah, so, so that kind of, I, I like how you kind of described what the Trinity is. But one thing that I prepared that uh, just a, something to say very quickly is this question of, okay, well, who is God, right? Mm-hmm. Because I think, I think philosophy covers this notion. Oops, sorry, am I still sharing? Yeah. Uh, oops, this question of what God is. But that that doesn't even start to come become a question until the second century, starting with Logos Christology. So when we're asking who is God, that's what the New Testament is really looking at. And that's where I like the biblical scholar, Dr. Richard Bauckham. And I think mm-hmm. he can help us um, understand that in terms of his divine identity thesis. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, are you familiar with that, Bo? Or? Yeah, a, a little bit, but um, I, I don't feel like I understand much what he means by being included in the identity of something. Gotcha. Maybe, okay. maybe you can fill me in on that. Cool. So, so here's my argument. I invented this, so if it's stupid, I'll, mm-hmm. I'll take the blame. Um, <laughs> Um, so I did this for my debate with Dale Tuggy, right? So, mm-hmm. so in the first premise one is the New Testament says there is only one God or Yahweh. There's mm-hmm. one thing, and it, it's a complex unity. It's it's not a yeshid or an absolute unity. So, mm-hmm. okay. Premise two is that, well, th- this is where um, social Trinitarianism comes in. The New Testament clearly states that God the Father, Jesus, uh, God, or God the Son, and the Holy Spirit are distinct individuals. They stand in distinct I-thou relationships, for example, mm-hmm. right? Picture the Garden of Gethsemane, you, you know, not my will, but your will um, to the Father. Mm-hmm. Um, now, premise three, here's where um, divine identity thesis comes in. So I think, who who is God? How do we answer this? Well, mm-hmm. who is God is any entity or individual that has one or more that has or shares one or more of the Yahweh identifying features is minimally a proper distinctive and essential part of God or Yahweh. Um, so mm-hmm. uh, just to give a bit of details, what, what exactly is a Yahweh identifying feature? Um, so there in the first place, uh, there's four things. So one is that there's a distinctive way that Yahweh interacts as in interacts in salvation history with Israel, right? So things like mm-hmm. only Yahweh can save. Um, well, in the New Testament, we learn Jesus shares that feature. He, he saves people. Um, there's also his relationship to creation. So there's creational monotheism, right? Only only Yahweh create created and sustains the universe. Um, so if Jesus shares in that, he's also God. Uh, there's also the sovereignty and rulership of the universe. Uh, and then finally, there's a cultic monotheism. So these are features, uh, you know, only Yahweh is worthy of worship. So if, you know, the Holy Spirit or Jesus is said to be worshipped, okay, he's identified with Yahweh. Mm-hmm. Make, making sense? Um, cool. Uh, oh, uh, so th- yeah, this part's, I guess, where I... I starting to lose it so so any anything that has a yahweh identifying feature is minimally at least an essential part of god or yahweh is that yeah okay um so i guess i mean how so are are they in what sense would the persons be God, just in the sense that they're essential parts of Yahweh? 
so in the when we're talking philosophy what is god yes that, that's where i would apply the trinity monotheism model but when we're talking about the bible things are loose, more loosey-goosey they, they don't understand they're not speaking philosophically and that sort of thing right so i i'm trying to to be more uh loose and understanding of the way they're using the language and I, I just I just think look they they just who who is God it, it's anyone that has or shares in these Yahweh identifying features um you know if you if you save so is is Yahweh like in the Old Testament is Yahweh the Trinity I, I think it is but obviously they identify it as you know they use the personal pronoun him right so this is where there's Lucy Lucy stuff yeah. like, no no Jew um, would have thought of the Trinity in 1400 BC. They, they were thinking mostly of the Father. Um, but again, they're, they're, they're just kind of, the way, the way to be consistent with Trinity monotheism is that like all they're saying is that, well, he's not only the Father, but it's just we know the Father has Yahweh identifying features. So that's the only thing we think of. Then the New Testament comes and people are kind of, figuring out like oh my oh my gosh jesus also has these yahweh identifying features he's also What's, god um go ahead so i mean I, I get the so sort of the premise like if something has a yahweh identifying feature then it's a part of god like an essential part of god um i wonder what what do you mean by yahweh identifying feature or is that just kind of a stipulative definition which uh, means essential yeah. part. Yeah, it's, it's it's any feature that is unique to the divine identity, right? It only apply only Yahweh could have these features. So, like only Yahweh as a whole could have the, those features, or yeah, and or a proper, distinctive, essential part of it. Yeah, I so I guess I find it's it's confusing because I find it odd to use the word identity. That like usually when I think of identifying or identity, you think only one thing could could have that property. Yeah, and, and that's kind of different sense, right? oh sorry, what what did you say? No, I just was saying you're using it in kind of a different sense. Exactly. I, I'm not being precise because because I don't think the Bible was thinking precisely philosophically. I'm I'm just trying to say well that there is a way given their language that it it could be consistent with my precise Trinity monotheism model. Like we can interpret it it from how they would have seen it. Mm -hmm. Um. So one one thing that I talk about in this this book that's coming up is. Um, I call the the theophany problem. So um, it's kind of, you know, partly it, it's a problem for Unitarians like like Tuggy, but I think partly it, it can be a problem for some other uh, views like like Craig's. So um, in the so in the Old Testament, you get this tension where it says no one has ever no one can see God and live. Right. God says no one can see me and live. But then Moses totally sees God. Right. Um, uh -huh. Even sees God face to face. It says God spoke to him face to face like a man speaks with his friend. And um, other people says they saw the face of God and so forth. So there's this this kind of tension. Right. Uh -huh. um, and I think you you know about this. I think I, I listened to the thing that one of the things you did with Dale and um, 
you know, in, in Second Temple Judaism, there's this kind of idea of two powers, that there's this second uh, being that you can see that's kind of like Yahweh Jr. and there's Yahweh Sr. There's the, the invisible Yahweh and the visible Yahweh. Um, and in the New Testament, you get, uh, interestingly, um, you don't get any sort of backpedaling on that. You actually get this sort of doubling and tripling and quadrupling down. Like it keeps saying no one has ever seen God. No one can ever see God. Um, uh, he dwells in unapproachable light whom no man living has ever seen nor can see and, and so on and so forth. And then it says Christ is the icon of God. It says uh, in 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, it says he's the icon of the invisible God in Colossians 1. He's the exact image of God's hypostasis in, in Hebrews. So, um, and other places too, where it says, you know, no one's ever seen God. The Son of God has revealed him. And, and uh, in the Transfiguration and in, in the book of Revelation, he's given these theophanic attributes, right? Like you see in late Second Temple Jewish sources about, you know, Yahuwah and, and Metatron and these things. So, um, so if Christ is the icon of God, like in, in the Bible, it's no one has ever seen God. Um, is Christ really the icon of the Trinity, though, or is he the icon of the Father? Yeah, I think it's talking about the Father in this biblical okay. text. Yeah. And so who, who would be the person that spoke to Moses, you know, on Mount Sinai and out of the burning bush and Isaiah saw sitting on a throne. I believe that was Jesus. Yeah, yeah. So so Christ is the this theophany figure from the Old Testament, right? And then he shows up in the flesh in the New Testament. And on the transfiguration, he reveals, you know, his glory. Um, so... Uh, so I mean, I, I guess it, it seems to me like there's there's already um, there's already sort of some sense of subordination there, anyway, right? Like the Father is invisible, or I mean, maybe not invisible, like I mean, whether it's invisible like by nature or something, or just not manifested, right? Not seen, um, but the Son gets revealed, right? Um, uh, and the son is kind of sent by the father to do things right on earth and so forth. So um, it seems like there's kind of, there's gotta be some, something going on there, right? Like to distinguish them. Definitely. In their, oh, sorry, go ahead. I mean, at least like in their roles or something like, like that, right? I mean. Definitely, yeah. The, yeah, there's definitely differences in that sort of thing. Um, and they, have, they do take on, you know, in the economic trinity, they take on different roles and, and that sort of thing. Are, are you are you saying, though, like, there's... So you would just say it's like kind of only an economic issue? I think so, yeah. Okay. Um, I, I tend to take the egalitarian route. Um, my yeah. reason was because of the the Asse problem. Like, I, I thought it was... You know, I, God is a real maximally great being in, in Eugene Nagasawa's terminology, right? And to me, I was kind of thinking that, well, in order to be the, the greatest uh, calm possible uh, being and stuff like that, all, all of their essential parts would be also to the greatest degree that's possible. 
Um, so the, you know, kind of thinking of a couple of, couple parts of that being lesser or subordinate uh, seems like, well, I can conceive of a greater being, namely one soul where they're all equal. Um, but so God know, is greater than the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Yeah, I mean, he's he's the combination of all all three of them. He's a collection of all three of them there. So, yeah, I mean, he, he's um, got both. Go ahead. I mean, do you see any anything in Scripture that says anything like that? That God no. is greater than the Father? No, of course not. Uh, no, um, nothing in Scripture. That does, that, I, does that bother you as a, as a Protestant? I don't know if you're like big on solo scripture or what, but well, I guess you must be because we just I, had uh, that. <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, no, I, so I am definitely solo scriptura, but um, um, again, I don't, I, just because I, I'm not restricted to only the Bible, right? Like the, this Trinity monotheism, it, there's not a hint of it anywhere in the Bible. So my argument at best, I was just trying to argue that it's consistent with it, but you know, I, I can't prove yeah. Okay. I, yeah. So, so, so you might just say something like, um, "Yeah, this may or may not be true, but it's just sort of something to show that the Bible's consistent, or something like this." Yeah, it's it's not contradictory yeah. to it. My, so, I guess one, a couple things that that occur to me. One is um, I'm not sure how a model of the Trinity shows the Bible to be consistent, or at least kind of, let's say, our interpretation of the Bible, because Dale Tuggy would just say interpret it differently. But let's, let's take a kind of, you know, reasonably standard Trinitarian sort of interpretation of the Bible. I'm not sure how a model of the Trinity shows the Bible to be consistent if it doesn't, um, if it just kind of relabels things and talks about things in different ways from the Bible. I mean, it's, it seems to me like maybe um you know maybe it's consistent with what the bible is saying but it seems like if you want to show that the bible is logically consistent on a certain interpretation then you would have to kind of work within the way that it uses language or at least you ought to be able to translate your model's language right into the language of the new testament so if we see that the new testament refers to the father as god it seems like we ought to at least be capable of sort of relabeling our model so that it fits that language, right? Yeah, i i thought it i I thought I could do that. Like that's what this this. Well, so so let's suppose we we relabel and we just say let's take um, so let's take Craig's view and just we'll just switch the label God from the Trinity over to the Father, right? Okay. Um, but on his view, the persons, I don't know if you agree with this, but on his view, the persons don't have the divine nature. On right. View? On yeah. Craig's view. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's a, a different sense in which they're divine, kind of like that cat that we're. Right. Yeah. So then now we would have a, a result where neither the persons nor God has the divine nature. Um, be, and this is because you're saying the Bible. But if we uh, take that, like take that that diagram that I had, right, where you've got the Trinity as a whole is is capital G God, right, and you got the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So we're just going to switch the label, like you do in monarchical Trinitarianism, right? So we just switch the label from capital G God being the Trinity to the Father. 
on on Craig's view, right? God, which is the Trinity, has the divine nature, but the persons don't, right? right. Yeah. So if all we do is tweak it, so okay, we're just going to label the Father God. Uh, now we've got a result where God doesn't have the divine nature either. Okay, I, I see. Um, but this, yeah, like this is where I'm just saying, like the the Bible isn't being proper, or I guess in a philosophical sense, it's. I don't want to call it an error, but it's just it's just kind of misunderstanding and just saying they just automatically associate God the Father as as being God, and that's what they're doing in these verses. That's why they just automatically equate it to well, well God is a, a him. It's always the singular person, God the Father. But mm -hmm. it, it, where it would be inconsistent with the Trinity monotheism, there, there's nothing in the Bible, would, would you maybe admit this, there's nothing in the Bible where it's saying God is only a him. Uh, he's only God the Father kind of thing. If, if there is a verse like that, then you could argue, well, that's, in, that's inconsistent with Trinity monotheism. Well, I mean, it says that Father is the only true God. Um, says we, we believe in there is for us one God, the Father, and one Lord, Jesus Christ. Uh, okay. There's got to be some sense of the term God, where there's there's one God, the Father, and the Father is the only true God. Yeah, it's, yeah, um, yeah. I guess it's just come. Yeah, for me. It would come down to language and saying, okay, when they're talking about the Father in this verse, are they talking about the Godhead or literally God the Father and stuff to make it that philosophical statement? Where yeah, so I, I do think like in some cases, right, you, you've just got the word God, like hoth, hotheos, as they, Erasmus yeah. pronounce it. The God. Um, so the God, and you know, that might just be almost like a proper name. You, I mean, you could say, um, you could analyze it like a definite description. So there's got to be some qualitative content, but maybe you could just interpret it as like, it's just, they're just using it like a name. So just stick that on the father and it doesn't really entail anything. But when you say there's one God, um, one is a number, right? And, and you can't count with names, you have to count with count nouns, just grammatically, right? So when you when it says there's one God, the Father, there the sense of I mean, God can't be a name uh, for the Father. It's it's a it's a noun. It's a count noun. So it has to mean something. Uh, and and I I mean obviously you and I agree. Like you don't want to say that it means like there's only one thing with the divine nature, right? That's not that's not what we, we don't want it to say that, right? Um, there's only one thing with the divine nature, and that's the Father. Uh, so it has to mean something, and it, it does seem to me like that's one of the uses of, of the word God in the Bible, like when it says, um, you know, God is a great God, he's the God of gods, and, and so forth. Um, there's, uh, I mean, it, and again, this is, I mean, a common idea in, in late Second Temple Judaism that there's one God in the sense that there's one kind of highest thing in the in the universe, right? This one archi, the, the monarchia, right? Um, I, I don't know what else you would say. I mean, you know, Trinitarians don't want to say there's one God, the Father, in, in the sense that there's only one thing with the divine nature, and that's the Father. 
or there's only one uh, thing that, you know, has a certain kind of power or uh, ability or only one spiritual being, you know, the, the father or something like that. Um, so I don't know what else we could say about the one God, the father, other than uh, that the father is the, the one uncaused cause. Okay. Um, I, I did have a following Tyler's thing. I did have a question, but just something in the audience, just to clarify on my end very quickly, and then we'll move on. But uh, okay. So someone's saying, look, if, if an essential doctrine is unclear, um, then you're not doing a service to Protestantism, to be honest. Um, maybe Dale should read the high prots on the issue. So I, I just do want to clarify because I am appealing to I don't know how to say it, but some loosey goosiness on the part of the scriptures uh, and stuff. And but the problem is, it's not an essential doctrine. Remember, I, I deny that figuring out the I mean, most people in human history don't have a dang clue how to figure out the Trinity and they're saved. Mm -hmm. So it's not if you have the wrong model, you're going to hell or something like that. But there are certain. Do you think, though, that that believing in the divinity of Christ is essential or essential-ish? Yep. Yeah. Yeah, that's what I was um, just about to say. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Good. Because because that's one thing that I don't get with with Craig is I mean, you know, literally speaking, on Craig's view, Christ does not have the divine nature. Well, yeah, but be I said being divine. Um, so like he, yeah, you don't have to believe he has. Okay, so would Arians would Arians count as as doing that as believing that the divinity of Christ? I well, so I think I mean, like Eunomius, who is the worst you know Arian that everybody freaked out about in the fourth century, says, um, "Sorry, I've got an ornery cat over here is trying to eat my cable." Um, but but you know he says. Uh, you know, he says he believes in the divinity of Christ and that, that Christ is the only begotten God. Um, I actually put this in my response to Craig. Um, uh, you know, Eunomius says, he says, don't anyone interrupt or let his mind be troubled. We have not used these expressions. He's quoting these expressions like the father being the only true God and, and uh, the only wise God who alone is good, alone mighty, alone has immortality. Um, and he says, we haven't quoted these expressions in order to take away the Godhead uh, of the only begotten. In other words, the divinity of the only begotten or his wisdom or his immortality or his goodness, but rather to distinguish them with respect to the preeminence of the father. For we confess that the Lord Jesus is himself only begotten God, immortal and deathless, wise, good, etc. Um, so, I mean, he says, yeah, Christ is, is divine. He has uh, the Godhead, he has a, a divine nature. He's the only begotten God. Um, he just thinks that that it's, you know, in a, in a different sense from the sense in which God uh, has those properties. The, the difference being that for Eunomius, God refers to the Father, and for, for Craig, God refers to the Trinity. But it's still doing this kind of the same thing, right? I mean, Craig is going to say, Craig's just going to say, also, we can distinguish the sense in which the father has those properties from the way in which God does. Yeah. I th I, yeah. I think just, just to piggyback off what you're saying, like when it comes to what's, what's essential or not, I, I think it's 
you don't have to believe Jesus has a divine nature. I, I don't even think most people even know, understand what a nature is. I, I certainly didn't hear of the Arist Aristotelian notion of the nature, right? I think of the, the properties type thing, but you don't have to believe in that philosophical under notion of it, but you do have to believe Jesus is divine in some sense, um, in the sense that the Trinity monotheism says they have it is, you know, that's fine. It's it. It's, mm -hmm. you don't have to have all the details figured out of, okay, well, only the Trinity has the, all the essential properties, including the property being tripersonal, like some guy on the street that just got healed or something by the Apostle Peter, he's not going to have anything. So I, sure. I can't see that needed. But is it okay to deny that Christ has the divine nature? I mean, not that I you don't have to understand it, but like if you do understand it and you say, yeah, I don't think that like I think Craig understands what a nature is. Right. So is it OK to, to just say, yeah, I think Christ doesn't have the divine nature? Yeah, I think that would be that would be fine if you understand it. What you're saying. So, yeah, I think you could be safe there. Okay. So okay. would you say um, Arianism would would be kosher? Arianism, they from my understanding they're they're denying uh, you presented differently but i understood them as denying that jesus was divine in any way um i mean they thought he was yahweh right they thought that he was uh the, the person who spoke to moses out of the burning bush when when the bible says you know yahweh sent fire uh, out of heaven from yahweh they say that's christ sending uh, fire from the father They just don't think that Christ has the same nature as as God. You know me, it's like I just said, right? I mean, you know me, it says, uh, you know, none of none of what he says is intended to take away the Godhead, the Theotis, right? The, the divine nature of the only begotten. Uh, we confess that the Lord Jesus is himself the only begotten God. So they just, they just think he doesn't have the divine, the same nature, right, as God. But uh, it sounds like that's, that's on your view, that they be okay. Yeah, well, I'll put it this way. Like, whatever, whatever they, they have to believe that Jesus is divine in the sense that he has uh, a divine person, the nature of a divine person, uh, for lack of a better word. Again, they don't need those words, but mm -hmm. that's, uh, yeah something to that kind of understanding okay so another question i guess related to that would be like in in colossians right it says in christ dwelt all the fullness of the godhead bodily that's all the fullness of theotis right the the divine nature um would you say that's also kind of just a miss speaking I, on the part of the new testament or yeah, I don't think that's literal at all. Um, yeah, like that, that's one of the issues that I had with the Orthodox and some of the creeds, like understanding that, um, and you kind of dealt with that in your presentation, that all the uh, individual persons have the fullness of the divine nature proper. Um, mm. uh, that's, that's something that I find to be incoherent in these councils. So yeah, like what, what's your take well, on what? that? Why would that be incoherent on your view? So if they have, if they, 
so for example, one of the things I said is that the divine nature proper it has to be tripersonal. Um, so if they, well, I mean, why, why I think that the divine nature has to be tripersonal. Um, so I think you can provide arguments for that, like along the lines of Richard Swinburne as to why God has to be a Trinity, right? His, his argument from love. For example. Does, does Swinburne think that God is uh, a tri-personal being? It's been a while since I've read him, there. or does he just think that, that God has to produce a son and a spirit? Yeah, he goes for functional monotheism. So I do That's right, functional monotheism, yeah, 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 yeah. right. So he doesn't, but still, I, I could adopt. Actually, I remember I, I emailed him about this before, and I asked him, like, depending on what God means, whether he would say that God is the Father or the Trinity. And actually, he just, his response to me was that it just depends on how you define the term God. So I guess, it, I guess if you define God as meaning the uncaused cause, then he says that would just be the Father then. Um, but if you define God as meaning, you know, the creator of heaven and earth or something, he'd say that's the whole Trinity. Gotcha. Um, but um, do you, here's a, a question, or I don't know, am I interrupting? Do you want to? No, no um, I was just going to go to, because I know Tyler has a, an objection, but yeah, ask your question, then I want to ask about partialism as a problem for this Trinity monotheism. Oh, sure, yeah, yeah. Um, well, so my... So on your view, you do think that persons have a nature, right? Like, yeah, like an individual essence for sure. Um, okay. Do you, do you think they have like a, a kind essence? Uh, I, I, well, that's, that's what I was kind of saying that there must be something like that, but I'll, I'll be, I never thought of that really until you brought it up and I had to bring that up as an answer. So I'm saying maybe there, there must be some kind of divine person nature as well that i haven't thought it out yet but yeah okay I'm, yeah. I'm okay well uh, then i won't i won't press you in that but but my one of my issues with with craig was was that that you know if you if you just say they don't have a nature at all um then you can't really say that christ has the divine nature when you start talking about the incarnation um it's same thing if you say they have a nature, but it's not, it's a non-divine nature, right? Then you can't say, even if Christ has two natures, it wouldn't be one human and one divine. Um, it's gotta be but divine. yeah, if you say that they have a, they have a divine nature, it's just not kind of the divine nature. Um, then, then my issue is I don't see how that solves the tritheism problem. And in fact, really, even really, regardless of whether you have a nature in there or not, if there's just, um, it, so I, I have an article in, in the Journal of Applied Logic called No New Solutions to the Logical Problem of the Trinity. And I just go in there and give a kind of methodological proof that within the confines of sort of standard logic, like if you've got standard identity and, and contradictions can't be true and that sort of thing, um, you basically really only have two ways to solve the tritheism problem, and that's either you equivocate on the word God, um, that is, say, you have two different senses of the term God, um, or you count by a relation other than identity. And my my big issue, though, with the equivocation solution, which is what what Craig uses, um, 
is all it really does is it gives you one sense of the term God in which there's one God, but you still have a different sense of the word God where there are three gods, right? So as long as you count by identity, then you can say, okay, there's a sense in which there's one God, but there's a sense in which the Father is God and the Son is God and the Holy Spirit is God. Um, and again, you can't... Um, you can't just take that as like kind of an adjective, like divine, right? Because we get things like there's one God, the Father. Um, you, you get things where, well, I guess that's a, a different sense of the term God. But anyway, you get things where the, the word God is used as a count now, or you think things like our God. Or, um, <clears throat> so anyway, you, you know, you, you've got a sense in which the Father's God, the Son's God, the Holy Spirit is God. And if you count by identity, then, then those are three gods. And, and you can't really, I say you can't downplay the sense in which the Father, Son, and Spirit are, are, you can't downplay the sense in which there's three gods because that's the only sense in which the Father is God and the Son is God and the Holy Spirit is God, right? So it seems unsatisfying to me because you still have, you still have it being true in some sense that there's three gods. All right. Let, let me ask you, since you're writing the book with, with William Lane yeah. Craig, because I, I remember you, you kind of mentioned this in your presentation and I, right. So, okay. So the divine nature proper, we'll just, we'll just mm -hmm. call it that. That is the soul. That's the Trinity. The, the soul is a substance, right? So that's, that makes sense. It has the, has all the essential properties for the div divine kind of thing proper. And then there's the three persons and, you know, I'll say, oh, they're centers of self-consciousness. They're a bundle of faculties sufficient for personhood. But you you mentioned, and William and Craig also mentioned, but there's also this individual essence which kind of supervenes on these faculties. So it's the persons aren't just bundles of faculties. Uh, first of all, am I, am I correct about that in terms of William and Craig? Or is there like a person that's supervening? Oh, yeah, I, I find him not super clear, um, yeah, whether the persons are just sort of bundles of faculties or something that, like, emerges out of them. Gotcha. Okay. Is that what you're asking? Yeah, because the, the thing, yeah. so in order to have a nature, if, if there's a divine person nature, um, obviously, what is that? It's a kind nature, so they would have to have all the essential properties of that kind of thing, of a divine person. So I'm I'm just trying to wonder is a person an actual a thing in itself, um, right? Because I know for us persons equals one person equals one soul. Um, so that's that yeah that that equates right. And obviously things for me existence is a relation belonging relation right. So a thing either a substance or a property thing or a heap of things. Uh, uh, sorry, a set of properties, in this case, the essential ones belong to a thing, whatever it is. So if there's going to be a nature, then it has to belong to a thing. And mm -hmm. yeah, that, that's what I was asking. Like, uh, does what does William and Craig say about a person being a thing in itself? Like, are there, it's not that there's substances in the ones. Yes, I, I mean, you, you better tell me what William Lane Craig thinks. I, I don't, I don't really understand what he, I mean, he it's it's odd in in his response to Daniel Howard Snyder. Um, he does at one point say that the persons have a nature, uh, but he doesn't. Um, 
he doesn't really explain like you know how does that work is it a divine nature are there two divine natures is there is it a non-divine nature um i don't know if he's super serious about that i mean maybe he maybe it's not really his considered view i i don't know and unfortunately in this book that we're writing i mean he he basically spends like 90 plus percent of his paper um, arguing for the divinity of Christ in in the New Testament, which is which is great, but then he has like two pages at the end where he just gives his model. He's just like, yeah, God's a tripersonal, uh, immaterial being. It's like soul with three persons, but he, and he's he just like, man, I'm not. and I'm like, that's what I want to talk about. But I mean, I'm appreciative that he spent so much time on the divinity of Christ. But sorry, um, you're, you're free. But yeah, you're yeah, free. Going along. Oh, Say what? Are you there? Yeah. Oh, oh was cool. that free, uh, freezing out? Oh, yeah, you're Sorry. Um, no problem. Okay, cool. But yeah, ho well, ho hopefully he has to write a response chapter. So I, I would like to see that when that book comes out, if, yeah, if you yeah. bring that objection. Because I know Dale Tuggy brought it up. Uh, so yeah, I'd like to see his answer to that for sure. But uh, yeah, Tyler Tyler is going to be angry with me if I don't uh, bring up this question. Okay, sure. Yeah, we'll do Tyler's uh, so, thing and then... Part, yeah, part partialism. This this is definitely uh, a heresy, uh, if not a damnable one, that applies to the Trinity monotheism model. So, I guess uh, he's saying, like, what doesn't uh, Trinity monotheism do uh, engage in partialism? If so, what is the issue with partialism? Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, um, I'm not as up on the. On the terminology of, of partialism and all that, but um, I can say this, that um, in, at least in antiquity, the, the big issue, so here, here's the, the issue, right? In, in pre-modern times, nobody counted by the relation of identity. Um, that, that wasn't how people thought arithmetic works. Um, so, you know, if you read Aristotle's categories, chapter six, where he talks about quantity um, for Aristotle. And, and honestly, I mean, Neoplatonists agreed with this account. Euclid, um, Nicomachus of Gerasa's uh, uh, introduction to arithmetic, um, Boethius, everybody talks about this. So um, quantity is, is a property of, of substances, of physical material things. Um, and it, Aristotle says there's two different kinds of quantity. There's there's uh, discrete and continuous. So continuous, you know, would be like length and width and, and breadth, um, uh, where you can you know cut, you know, you can make as many cuts as you want. So there's no, you know, it's it's kind of continuous. Discrete quantity is when things are uh, are divided. Um, so that they don't share a common boundary. So continuous quantities share common boundaries. Uh, discrete quantities don't share common boundaries. Um, so that's how you think about number. Like to say that there are two sheep uh, is to say that the either that the sheep uh, are divided or separate, they don't share a common boundary, or that the nature of sheephood is divided, right? Um, uh, into into multiple things, and so the reason that the persons of the Trinity don't count as three gods when they have their three hypostases that have the divine nature is that they aren't 
physically located somewhere in space and separated and divided from each other, right? They're, they're outside of time and space and there's no division. Um, and even if you imagined them in time and space, I mean, it would be like they're omnipresent and omnitemporal or something, right? There's no, there's no division. There's no separation. People like uh, John, I, was, I don't know how to pronounce his name, Philoponus, Philoponus, people pronounce it differently, but um, he got in trouble for being a tritheist because he thought that um, the, the divine nature that was shared by the, the three persons was shared in the way that, um, that human beings have the same nature, right, which is that it's divided. Um, so let me let me explain a little bit about this. If if you um, so let's say you're an austere nominalist, like you don't believe in tropes or universals or anything, you just think they're particular things, right? Then then you would just if you wanted to talk about well, what is humanity, right? What does that word refer to? Well, there's no abstract object called humanity, so all you could really do would be say, well, take all the human beings uh, and their sum, right? The 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 sort of scattered object that they compose would be called humanity. And so humanity is divided into these different bits and pieces, right? So that's where we get the word particular actually is from uh, that people use this term Mary Kay so a, a part like being. So there's the, the big being that's humanity. And then there are these particular, which are literally parts of the big thing, right? Um, if you believe in in tropes, which are individual property instances, right, then you'd say, okay, I've got my humanity here. It's an abstract object, sort of, but anyway, it's over here, and you've got your bit of humanity over there, and, and so forth. So uh, you get a similar thing, right? It's just that humanity in general would be kind of the sum of all the little tropes, right? Um, and then again, humanity is divided into into the individual humans. Um, if you believe in like in-ray universals where it's really the same thing that's in multiple places, then um, then humanity doesn't get divided even though it shows up sort of in, in different places. And if you think that's how counting works is by division, then you get the result that if you believe in universals, uh, then you get the result like Gregory of Nyssa says that there's strictly speaking, there is only one man uh, and so, strictly speaking, there's only one God. Anyway, not a lot of people had that view. Gregory's kind of an oddball in that way. But if you uh, if you're a nominalist, you just say, okay, um, the number of of humans is just equal to the number of hypostases, right? That are human. Um, if you believe in tropes, then the question is kind of how they get individuated. If if tropes get individuated by their bearers then again, the number of humans is just the number of individual hypostases that have a trope of human nature, right? But if tropes get individuated, not by their bearers, but by time and space relations themselves, right? Then you get a weird situation, right? Where normally like the number of humans would be equal to the number of tropes of humanity because humans are separated or, or divided by time and space but the persons are not individuated by spatial relations right they're they're individuated by these relations of begetting and proceeding so they would just count as one god right um and that was always the view is that the the nature is undivided 
predicted among the three hypostases. So that's why on that second use of the word God, where it just means a thing that has the divine nature, the persons don't count as three gods. They just count as one God because they're homoousius and undivided. They have the same nature and it's undivided. And in antiquity, the, the issue with partialism was basically that people like Philoponus and Severus of Antioch and some of the uh, like Nestorians and Monophysites would say this, where they really, they said that the divine nature is divided among the persons. And the, the problem with that is that that's tritheism. Then. You just get the, the result that there's three gods. In the modern period, people stopped thinking of, of counting as working in that way, and they, they start counting by identity. So, gotcha. uh, yeah. Cool. So, yeah, yeah I mean, cool. I don't know. You know, now maybe, yeah, maybe I guess that's why people don't worry about it as much because they just are, are kind of <laughs> stuck with yeah. the tritheism problem anyway, in, in, in a way. I mean, just got to deal with it in a different way. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. Um, just, I guess, quick, quickly, my take on the. I, I don't think uh, it commits partialism from my, my understanding on the history is that the concern there is uh, about, you know, it's like almost God is made of physical stuff and you can literally divide him. Like, you know, if you, mm -hmm. the Trinity monothe monotheism model, the, the analogy that William Craig uses, the dog Kerberos, well, that, that's a physical being. You could rip off one of the dog's heads or something. So that's partialism. But with God, num number one, it's a spiritual substance it's a that's one soul with three persons in it and they're indivisible and essential parts so it it totally bypasses the heresy of uh partialism in, in my books there um one thing uh okay no never mind i was going to show um william craig wrote an article where, where he talks about the different possibilities of um uh, what does he call it? Possibilities of um, composition, right? So, mm. yeah, maybe I should show it just so people can see it. it it's in his response to Daniel Howard Schneider, who's mm. written a, a paper against Trinity monotheism. Um, and then William Lane Craig wrote his response. But, you know, you can see, okay, so it is an individual um, category. So it's like, you know, stones. But one wall is made up of bunch of individual stones or something right or, oh right yeah i remember this so, yeah yep exactly so you know the trinity is obviously a collection the each of the divine people are are parts of that collection so you know i think it plays this role but the difference here between like a pack of wolves is you cannot separate out the parts those are essential parts and that's that's why it's avoiding it's not like just a team of soccer players where you can remove one player or a pack of wolves where one of the wolves dies or something like that. Um, so yeah, hopefully that was helpful. I, I can see most of the audience are not happy with me, but um, cool. Yeah, we, we've got uh, I hope people. Uh, I didn't check the comments, but I hope people were at least more civilized. Um, and if they weren't, I no, no, no worries. You, you were good. Yeah, I think I think there was only one that I just had to. Okay, you're getting out of control. But uh, <laughs> all right, cool. Well, on that front, we do have good audience questions. Oh, sure. um, okay, so this one uh, is from Mr. Jetty. He's asking you: Do Orthodox people have to pray to Mary? Um, um, well, maybe you could relate this to the Trinity. Is she? Is she divine too? Is she part of the Trinity? No, so, you know, Mary is not uh, not one of the Trinity, like in uh, 
like the Quran seems to think or whatever. Um, so, I mean, I, I guess, uh, I mean, I, I, don't know, I guess you don't maybe have to, but we do. So, um, but I should say, I mean, when, when you pray, you know, when we talk about prayer to the saints, um, for us, that's, that's like asking the saints to pray for us. Right. So in the, in the same way that you would like, uh, you know, in old English, like you, you, Hamlet or whoever says, speak the speech, I pray thee as I pronounced it to thee, like it just means to ask someone for something. So if you ask your friend to pray for me, you know, literally you are praying to your friend to pray to God for you, right? You're, you're asking them to pray for you. So we ask Mary and, and the saints for their intercessions, like it talks about in, in Revelation. All right, cool. Um, so this one's from Ladies and gentlemen, he says, does the West leverage the individual perspective in their understanding of God's simplicity, whereas the East, congruent with Heiser, would say God is uh, a, a species or kind unique? I'm not quite sure uh, I know what you mean by it, um, leveraging the individual perspective. Um, but it might, I... Oh, sorry. It, it just... Uh, it, I don't know if this is what they're getting, but like there is a notion in in like Thomas Aquinas where like God is like the the sun and stuff are like relations. So like there's only one. Individual. Yeah, I don't know if that's. Yeah, I don't. Uh, so I, I used to hate Aquinas and, <laughs> and Augustine. So like, and and I every so often I I, I hate Western uh, theology less, and I and I start to think I just closer to what we believe and I thought and, and stuff. So uh, I want to be charitable to Aquinas. And, and I, when he talks about like the, the persons are just subsistent relations. Um, so, I mean, certainly like the way that sounds um, is, is bad. Um, or, or, and a lot of Orthodox are like, this is modalism, right? Um, uh, like there's just this one concrete thing and there's just sort of some relations hanging off of it like it begets itself or something and that's just that's modalism um i, I feel like i feel like i i don't know if that's really you know i'm not i'm not sure if thomas's actual view is is exactly what it sounds like i think he maybe just sort of thinks that a person is a bundle of properties um which is one view of i mean that's really that's the Cappadocian view too is that a hypothesis is a bundle of properties, um, and he just thinks that you know the Trinitarian persons happen to be just relations. That's that's what constitutes them. So that's what he means. It's not maybe quite as bad as, as what it sounds like, but um, um, but certainly the West tends to have a stronger notion of of what divine simplicity entails. For, for us, I, I feel like anyway, I think that the issue is largely, again, like you don't want God to be a contingent being that is kind of composed of parts that are more fundamental than, than him. Um, but we make a distinction between the, the nature and the persons and the nature and the energies and, and so forth. All right. All right. So this one is a super chat from Max the Confessor. And... He says, does Bo think Nicene personhood affected mm -hmm. Christian metaphysics around abortion? That's interesting. Um, I I don't, I wouldn't suspect so. And, and the reason why is, um, 
that this talk about personhood, um, I think is, is problematic so that, you know, in Greek, it's the term hypostasis and that sort of gets translated into Latin as persona. Mm -hmm. uh, and then it's really Boethius who goes in and says a person is an individual substance of a rational nature. But what he means by individual substance is hypostasis. So a person is a hypostasis with an individual nature uh, or with a rational nature. Um, uh, but for the fathers, right, I mean, they'll give examples of hypostases like uh, a palm tree is a hypostasis, right? Horses are hypostases, dogs and cows are hypostases, uh, gold coins. Um, Theodore Abukura uses the example of like pieces of charcoal, right? Those are hypostases. So for them, hypostasis really just means like an individual, right? It's just a concrete individual. Um, and whether, you know, I mean, it turns out it, it's true that the divine hypostases are rational, um, but that's really not kind of the, the concept of a hypostasis. And one another reason why I say I, I'm, I would question that is um, uh, that it affected anything is, I mean, you can go back to like Justin Martyr, I think, um, yeah, I think Justin Martyr talks about abortion and it is, you know, it's murder and that's way before you get these technical definitions of person and hypothesis and so forth and then also later on um you know there are people way after the fourth century that um would say abortion is okay until like quickening so like when the baby starts kicking because some people believed that um uh that was when the soul entered the body. Um, they had a theory about that. So, um, so you got some people who, who would say that. Um, so I think the the issue is more really a question of like, when, when, when does a fetus have a soul, which I think, I, and I agree there, there's some people who have written about this lately. Cause I think, I think Thomas Aquinas thought that you, it was okay up until quickening. Um, and some Thomas in modern days have said, well, that's just because of his understanding of, when it developed a nature, right? So the, again, if you think of nature as a source of motion, then it doesn't really have its nature until it starts kicking, right? Until it starts moving. But but if you know some about modern medicine, right? I mean, now we know like it's from the moment of conception, the thing has this self-organizing principle where it's growing and it's got its DNA and it's doing stuff. So um, anyway, that's that's some thoughts about it. So I, I don't, I, I, I'm always, I'm, I, I, people like to do this thing where they say they, they want to say that like the fourth century, um, like Christian debates about the Trinity really kind of like set in motion this whole new way of thinking about persons and so forth. And I, I'm, I'm highly skeptical of, of that narrative. Um, I, I think, I think Gregory of Nyssa just takes the definition of hypostasis from Porphyry, uh, from Porphyry's Isagogue, which uh, his definition of individual and individual in the category of substance. And I think people have known about individuals for a long time. <laughs> Back to Plato and Aristotle. I mean, it's just a common sense idea, right? And and I think um, it's, it's really more, I think, with Boethius kind of putting this thing about rationality in there that it kind of, um, we start talking about persons in that sense. But anyway, that's a little bit of thoughts about that. Cool.
All right. Yeah. I on, on the issue of dualism, I think I also take the uh, Aristotelian or like meta, metaphysical Aristotelian or Thomistic view, right? It, myself, where like the body is almost like a mode of the soul itself. So, all right. Uh, so again, Max the Confessor. Wow. You guys uh, are going to get rich off off Max the Confessor. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's, he's very inquisitive, very curious. Um, um, I guess yeah. so. Why is the New Testament language imprecise? The authors read Philo, Eratus, Menander, and yeah. Epimenides. Um, I think that's a question for you. Yeah, it's it's kind of uh, as to why it's imprecise. Um, I don't know. Um, I think it's because the notion of the Trinity, in terms of a philosophical concept, took time to develop. I don't think that. They had all the answers immediately given to them. They they didn't have some inspired authority. They had to kind of work things out. They had bits and pieces. They they knew that Jesus did share in the divine identity. Um, that that was clear to them, and I think it's implied that yeah, the Holy Spirit also shared in this divine identity as well. Although that was their main focus was Jesus, but it it took time to develop. It, in terms of philosophical language and to understand how do we make sense of this in terms of like Greek philosophy and stuff. And that started with Logos Christology. Um, you know, like why, why wasn't Logos Christology present in Mark's gospel or something like that? Um, as, as to them reading Philo and, and the rest, um, I, I, yeah, I don't, I don't know how much the authors were into Greek philosophy or, or knew it, um, or just had kind of common, common knowledge of it. But yeah. What do you, yeah. do you have any thoughts on that? Or? I, a couple of things. I mean, I, I just, one, I, I won't, I won't get into this with you, but I mean, it, it does make me really, uh, uncomfortable to, uh, I don't know, to, to just, yeah, just say, well, the new Testament's just being imprecise. Um, Certainly, it's not you know. I mean, not as you know, super. It's not Thomas Aquinas or something like like that. But, um, but I, I will say, yeah. I mean, it, it is it is super clear. I mean, lot, lots of people have written about this. That um, if I mean, whether or not the any of the New Testament authors like what they directly read, it's it's kind of hard to to say. But but certainly, whether they had read Philo or you know, just were kind of influenced by similar ideas or something. There, there certainly are the same themes. Um, David Runia has a book or maybe several books about this, that, you know, Philo in the New Testament, um, where there, you know, all these references to um, at least similar ideas. Uh, Paul pretty clearly knew um, something about Stoicism and, you know, Platonism. Um, there's, there's ideas and, and phrases and things in, in his work. There's certainly, I mean, I can say for sure, I mean, there's there's certainly like platonic, you know, technical terminology. So one of the things that, that annoyed me too when I started learning Greek is I, I realized that um, the people who translate the New Testament and the church fathers are different from the people who translate Greek philosophy. Uh, and they... Um, it seems like there's a vested interest on both sides to not make it clear um, just how much the vocabulary overlaps. Um, 
uh, I, I wrote a little bit about that in uh, an essay you can find online in this Introduction to Philosophy by Rebus, but Introduction to Philosophy of Religion by Rebus. Um, it's called The Intertwining of Philosophy and Religion in the Western Tradition. And I talk some about that, how there's this kind of overlap between them. Uh, and that is one reason why I would say, I mean, it is like when, when I, I mean, sure, sometimes when the New Testament uses the word nature, like it's not quite precise or it's not sort of how we maybe use it or it's used later on. Um, but I mean, I do think they generally have an idea of what like a nature is or when they say theotis. Um, um, there's other arguments for that too. But anyway, yeah, I, I, I'm... Uh, and I do think there's a lot of influence from Philo. Keep in mind, by the way, I mean, Jesus, uh, if, if Matthew, is it Matthew or Luke that, that says, you know, Jesus went to, um, you know, they, they, Joseph took the family to Egypt, right? After the, after Herod slaughtered the, the innocents, uh, that, you know, 99.999% chance that would have been Alexandria, Egypt, where there's a huge, you know, Jewish settlement and there, there weren't in other places, it'd be hard to keep kosher, you know, anywhere else. Um, and that would have been the same time that Philo was there. <clears throat> so Jesus, you know, would have been going to the same synagogue where Philo was teaching and stuff. So it's not really, um, it's not really surprising in a way if you see, you know, uh, echoes of Philo in the New Testament. But what about, uh, okay, so something with like the logos just very quickly as a, as a follow-up, mm -hmm. like, I, I kind of more side with Mike Brown. Like some people say, no, really, what these guys had in mind was the Memra and the Aramaic Targum. Yeah, sure, sure. You know? So yeah. that's not exactly. They're not using Greek categories. For well, like well, uh, I I would argue that that the logos in Philo is the Memra. Have you read Daniel Boyarin's paper on that? The the Gospel of the Memra. I think so. Um, it's been a anyway, while. It, I, it, I, would, yeah. I would recommend it. it. Just you can find that online too. Daniel Boyarin, uh, the Gospel of the Memra. And what I mean, what he argues is just that uh, you know people have wanted to kind of keep these separate and say, oh, Philo's a Platonist and he's getting this for. But but he he points this out that you know um, the way Philo uses the word logos like is really not there really isn't much precedent for it in Greek philosophy. Like, it's just kind of because it's the word logos and people, you know, associate that with Greek philosophy. But to, like, personify it and you, you talk about it as God's power and that, like, it's, uh, he, he just says that's, you know, it's, may, maybe there's a sense in which he's kind of trying to make it more congenial to, to Gentiles or whatever. But um, I, I think the logos in Philo is just the Mimra. Okay. All right. Fair enough. Um, all right. There's one. It looks like it's for me again. But um, so by so this was something that uh, the, the yeah, fans yeah. on me, right? Because uh, I misspoke a bit. But by what metric does Dale determine heresy? Um, heresy. I uh, don't really care about that. Um, that I guess if you go against the 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 councils and stuff, I'm a heretic. Don't care. Um, but I think what you're asking is, do I? How do I determine a damned? heresy like if you believe this you off to hell like you're not going to be saved yeah. um now i would just say so the way first of all the way i determine it is through the the bible through so if, if the bible explicitly says 
believe this or you know so it explicitly says you have to believe jesus rose from the dead you don't do that uh you're damned um and there's also implicit things right so there are verses in like first john that say look if you love him in other words if you're saved you will keep his commandments well this implies that commandments related to don't steal things uh, you know don't steal things engage in homosexuality I, I command you to be baptized um these things are implicitly essential um you have to be willing to if you've repented you have to be willing to obey his commandments because you love him so if you just say the heck with it i'm not gonna go to communion i don't care about it uh no you, you don't love jesus and you're damned so that that's how i determine whether something's a damned heresy or not as to Arian, Arianism being fair game, I, I think I misspoke there. So like, again, I, I'm trying to keep it, it was in the context of, uh, he was saying Arians uh, deny that Jesus has this divine nature proper, which William Lane Craig does, which I do, right? Because only the Trinity has it. Um, but this is where I'm thinking there could be a nature that the divine persons have. So it's a divine person nature. And in that case, Arianism would fail, obviously, right? But Arianism teaches Jesus was created. That's that's not divine in any sense. That that contradicts even the loosey-goosey definition of thinking Jesus was divine in the New Testament. So Arianism would be a damned heresy for sure. Um, I misspoke when I said in the moment, yes, because I was confused about, okay, well, only the Trinity has the nature. The, I don't know if the persons have the nature at that time, but I'm thinking now they have to. So, yeah. Anything on your end? You'd say there's like two uncreated divine natures. Yeah, I, th I think that there are. Yeah, there's a divine person nature, and then there's the divine nature proper. Cool. All right. Um, nothing. No other questions. Cool. That. Yeah, that covers it. Covers it. Any uh, closing words on your end? Uh, I know. Uh, hopefully, I was interesting yeah. or, or something. Yeah. No, I thought it was interesting. Um, I don't know. I, I I do worry if that I mean if there are two uncreated divine natures, um, and the persons do have an uncreated divine nature. Um, would you say there is a sense in which there are three gods? Definitely not, because they are all just essential parts of that one soul. That that soul isn't it. So you'd say we don't count by identity then. I assume. Yeah, yeah, I guess, I guess so. I need to think on it, but it sounds like that's what. Because my issue is sort of, I mean, once you say that we don't count by identity, um, then I guess I just don't get what the motivation is for the the equivocation solution anymore, right? Just, you just mm -hmm. say the Father, Son, and Holy. There's just the one divine nature, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have it, and we don't count by identity, so that's not three gods. Um, well, it's again, it's I don't I'm not comfortable that you're leaving out the, the divine identity of the soul it's, itself, right? Like, I mean, why do I need to think that there's a soul uh, in just addition to the three persons? Oh, sorry. Uh, just because that's what essentially unifies these things. Uh, otherwise, it is truly it, you just have three separate beings. That is true. Okay, so you so you wouldn't say like we count by division is that counting works it has something to do with being unified by a soul or something like that yeah yeah exactly yeah so they, i mean that 
then I just, I guess, I mean, I, I don't have a objection worked out or anything. I, I just would kind of want to know more about how that, how you think counting works. Cause it seems like that's a, I mean, that going to be an essential part of the picture. Cool. Yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah. All right. Uh, yeah. Awesome. Um, it was good talking to you. And again, uh, anyway, I apologize if anyone got unruly on the on the chat and and uh, for anything oh, no. I might have done to to offend you. But I appreciate talking to you. Yeah, I appreciated talking to you too. This this is a, a much better conversation than the one with. Jay with <laughs> I can imagine. Uh, <laughs> this is the one, the type I like to have. So yeah. Yeah, you're you're welcome back on Faith and Altered, but uh, back with Faith and Altered, you're welcome back on Real Seekers anytime as well. So. Happy uh, cool. All right. Well, have a, a great day and take care. Oh, I've got to play the little outro because this is Faith and Alter. So. All right. Let me use this See you later. Uh -huh. All right. Take care.